Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com gom. There's over 180,000 titles to choose from for your favorite platform. And the child? She hasn't chosen a name yet. His name is Sam. Charlie. Do you remember the oath you swore when you joined this order? He's not my child, Mr. Raymond. She's one of Craster's wives. I remember every word of the oath. Night gathers and my watch begins. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. The realms of men. That means her as well as us. We didn't build 500 miles of ice wall 700 feet high to keep out men. The night is gathering, Mr. Raymond. I've seen it. It's coming for all of us. Met bards and skin changers, and welcome to Game of Microphones. I'm Lord Sterling, Sir Duncan, Keeper of Loki, and this is episode 72. Today, I'd like to welcome back our esteemed guest, Lady Rachel of House Fox. Welcome back to Game of Microphones, my lady. Thank you, Duncan. I am so happy to be back and really excited to talk about this episode. Yeah, this is a good one, huh? It is a good one. <laughs> On this episode of our series rewatch, we're covering Game of Thrones Season 3, Episode 10, Misa, the season finale. And just in case you're not already aware, this is a spoiler-filled podcast from the perspective of someone who's current on the TV show. That means you've seen all the way through Season 7. So it's still not too late now to cut off your ears because phantom ears can't hear spoilers. Warning. <laughs> Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. What'd you think about this episode? I thought it was really good. It's been a while since we got back into the rewatch like we were just talking about earlier today. So um, I did watch The Red Wedding again just to kind of reset my Game of Thrones (laughs) caliber. (laughs) Nice. And um, I definitely picked up on some interesting stuff that you know occurs after the red wedding and it's it's a great episode for a lot of our our favorite characters for sure it's a really really awesome episode i love the ending of this one so much it's one of the most like uh, powerful moments in the series i think when when the whole misa moment you know oh for sure and that shot at the end with her in the middle of the circle and the dragons and the army yeah The music going off, it was just insane. Amazing. Let's jump right into it. So what's your number five? So my number five is the rat cook. Hey, (laughs) that's my number five as well. Oh, sweet. We can can collaborate. Yeah, the the rat cook slash night fort. 
Yeah. So I felt that this was my number five because obviously we just watched The Red Wedding Mm -hmm. and Bran actually doesn't even know that his mom and brother have been killed. True. And he he tells the story about the cook that was cursed because he fed the king's sons to him and Mira makes the point, you know, if we turned all of the killers into white rats, like everybody would be running around like a white rat. So Bran made it a very strong point. He goes, it wasn't because he killed people. It was because he killed them under his own roof, like violating guest right. Yeah, that's something the gods can't forgive. No. And so what this does is from I try to when I do this rewatch, look at it from what I would be told as if I was a first time watcher with Game of Thrones. Oh, cool. Just with a bunch of background, knowing what has occurred and what will occur. And so what I found is that if you're paying attention your first time around, this would tell the audience that what Walter Frey did was wrong on a like deity level. Right. And considering he, he says that um, it's something that the gods can't forgive, apparently that includes the red god as we see his instrument, Arya, punish Lord Walder and his entire house for this unforgivable sin later in the series. Yes, absolutely. So it, it does tell the audience that it's what Walder did was really fucked up from a you just murdered the entire Starks <laughs> or, you know, a lot of the Starks and a lot of the army. But from a from a seven gods perspective or even just a gods in general perspective, the fact that you did it after offering them guest right is just completely not OK. It's just unacceptable. And I found it really interesting because, again, watching it from a you know first time viewer perspective, the second Bran finishes that statement, it cuts to Walder Frey and the women wiping up what I assume to be Talissa's blood off the floor. Oh man, that's messed up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. great, tra- great uh, transition there. And it's yeah, I like how it, this uh, explanation of the rat cook perfectly mirrors the uh you know the previous episode where we actually see guest right violated yeah and what i really loved about it i think i can't i think it was johnny in our reigns of castamere episode that was saying he watched the red wedding and then went to the season one or season seven episode one to watch Arya's vengeance on yeah. Walder Frey. Immediate well, satisfaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what Swift I, justice. What I loved is that even that cut to Walder Frey, it's a total foreshadow that Walder Frey gets killed by Arya after she feeds him his son. So yep. I, I thought that was kind of a cool, a cool, you know, movement into... It's talking about what literally just occurred in the episode before, but it's also foreshadowing the vengeance that Walder Frey gets finally. Right. This <laughs> time, Arya instead of him. the violator of guest right feeding somebody's children to the, the, the victim, <laughs> um, this time the, the violator of guest right ends up eating <laughs> his children. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so it's cool. like a, it's like karma at its best. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. I also made one more note about this kind of overall 
theme of the rat cook was Walter Frey seemed more bitter about the Tullys than he really cared about killing the Starks. I noticed that Roose Bolton kept bringing up the Starks, but uh, Walter Frey was like, no one batted an eye when John Aaron married that little Tully bitch. Right. I just feel like Frey has always been bitter towards the Tullys. He was honestly gloating more about the Tullys being dead than the Starks. Yeah, he's and been he sort of a gloating. longtime enemy of them, and there's been previous snubs um, between, you know, where the Tullys have snubbed the Freys in the past and on a number of occasions. So, yeah, it's definitely been building up for a while with him. And he's old yes. as hell, so he saw all of it, you know? <laughs> exactly. And I know that he had been wanting to marry off one of his girls to the Tullys for a really lo long time. And, you know, everyone kind of makes fun of Walter Frey. And, you know, I loved that part where he goes, and I'm Lord of River Run. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah, just rubbing salt in the wound. Yes. Classic. <laughs> yeah. So that was my number five. What's yours? Nice. To uh, add to that, oh, yeah. just a yeah, little about the the, uh, the night fort and stuff. This this is one of the really cool places we get to see a little bit of on the show, and from we get to see it from a distance when they first discover it as Mira's returning from doing some recon, checking to see if it's empty, if it's safe for them to sleep there. But um, it's never really explained on the show, I don't think. But the night fort, if I remember correctly, used to be the like the central main castle on the wall where the Night's Watch um, operated from. And over the years, as they've become less and less manned and capable and equipped, they've had to abandon the castles one by one. And they ended up moving their seat, their main seat from the night, the night fort to Castle Black. So this used to be the central command station for the Night's Watch, which is kind of cool little background information. That is cool because it was funny when I watched it, when Bran and Hodor and the Reeds are leaving, the the tunnel that they walk through looks a lot like the tunnel at Castle Black. Right. It actually made me think of the first scene of the whole show where the rangers are preparing to to explore in the north and they have their first interaction with the White Walker in the pilot episode. And uh, it's actually a really cool shot as they were walking down this tunnel because it's uh, it's... Mira and Bran and Hodor and Jojen all walking along and the tunnel goes on and in the background um, further past them the the mouth of the the tunnel into the into the north uh, beyond the wall is like this white hole kind of looks like the moon and a summer walks right across it so you see like this wolf silhouette oh. outlined in the moon shaped wolves and moons go together you know so it's just yes. kind of a cool symbolic little thing like i could just picture him howling oh right <laughs> at the moon it was so cool which is funny because is it ram or not ramsey roos howls in this episode <laughs> was it was it roos or i thought it was walder oh was it walder oh <laughs> walder, that's right yeah. it's walder because then roos goes forever young yep so funny, man. And then I immediately thought of Napoleon Dynamite when he said that because they play the song Forever Young at the prom. Oh, that's great. I love that movie. A freaking Me 12 too. gauge. What do you think? Got no skills. <laughs> <laughs> that's the best. Hunting skills? Rock climbing skills? <laughs> Vote for Pedro. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, some other cool stuff at the night fort. Um, one of the best parts of the episode is when Hodor walks over to the well 
Hodor, Hodor. Yes. Hodor. <laughs> that goes down in the well. So cool. And uh, we get the great scene where where this hulking shadow emerges from the depths of the well, and Mira wakes up and everybody's prepared, and she screams, ah, and jumps over with her frog spear. And it's Sam, and he's like, don't kill me, don't oh, hurt me, please. Don't kill me. <laughs> I thought he did a great job of acting in that scene, the way he said, like, don't hurt me, it was just so funny and convincing and legit, because he's such a wuss, you know, such a big wimp. He but totally it's, is. It's really scary in the books, because before he gets to the surface, there's like an, a prolonged period where you hear like thump, thump, like steps echoing up the stairs inside of the well, and... They're all scared to hear what's coming because it sounds like something big, you know, which it is. <laughs> Seriously. Um, I have some notes on this specific scene as well. When, awesome. Um, I kind of dubbed it. It's not a part of my top five. It's just parts of some of my notes. But Great. Um, when Jojen is talking to Sam about kind of what they, you know, what Sam saw, mm -hmm. uh, you know, beyond the wall, Jojen says to Sam... The Night's Watch can't stop them. The kings of Westeros and all of their armies can't stop them. And Sam goes, but you're going to stop them? Right, 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 yeah. And, and Sam is just blown away that, that Jojen even knows this. Like, how do you even know this? You were right? south of the wall. Only a few select people that are members of this Night's Watch ranger team have even seen the White Walkers or know that the Whites are around or anything. Yeah, so what I remember, though, is John in season seven says i i i don't want to say verbatim because i didn't go back and watch it i just didn't have time but he says something extremely if not verbatim similar to danny when they first meet at dragonstone when he's it was either in the throne room or when they were in the cave and i thought that that was maybe kind of a foreshadow of either Bran will actually stop the Night King, or maybe John will be the one to stop the Night King because. And what's the quote that you're referring to, which was like near verbatim? Um, the Night's Watch can't stop them. The oh, kings of Westeros right. can't stop them, and all of their armies can't stop them. I also all believe the king's John... horses and all the king's men <laughs> couldn't put Humpty together. Again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he also says something very similar to Cersei when they meet. So yeah, that makes this... sense. This is the first time that we've heard it. I, I don't want to say it's verbatim because I'm not 100% sure, but it was so close that it piqued my interest and made me write it down. That's so killer. it was close enough. We get to see on display um, Sam's powers of, de of deduction, his sleuthing capabilities um, at this moment too. He emerges from the hole. He's looking back and forth at these people. And they're asking him, who are you? And he's like, Sam. And she's like, Gilly, don't hurt us. You know, and um, he's like, I'm a brother of the Night's Watch. And and Bran starts to say, my brother, he's in the Night's. And Jojen sh shushes him, which shushes. is slick because he's, you know, trying to maintain at least some tactical advantage. Doesn't want to give away too much information, anything that could be used against him. But immediately Sam starts looking back and forth. He's like, who's your brother? And Jojen's like, doesn't matter. And he's like, you're John's brother, the one who fell from the window. You know, he sees that he's crippled. He sees the direwolf. He sees Hodor. And he's like, I've spent enough time around ghosts to know direwolf when I see one. And I've heard all about Hodor. And if and if he wasn't sure before that moment, <laughs> Hodor gives up the game. Oh, my God. His Hodor, creepy Hodor. smile. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, there's no way they could tell Hodor like not to Hodor. So if you know who Hodor is, and he confirms that by Hodoring, like the game is up. You know, he gave away it's their over. identities, uh, which was so funny, man. And Jojen was very stoic in this scene with his whole, uh, his whole like you know knowledge of what's going on and the, his steadfast. Um, ambition to succeed and move forward and it was just crazy how bran is like like he's like resigned himself to his fate at this point he's like i don't want to you know i want i want to go to castle black with you but i can't i have to go north we have to like we we, have to do this pretty crazy yeah i i wrote down too that it's kind of ironically funny that sam is the first man to kill a white walker in thousands of years like all the people (laughs) the biggest coward we know is sam simultaneously the most badass guy in thousands of years yeah it's great but i love i just have to do a sidebar i love the stark music oh my gosh every time it plays i'm just like oh this is so sad and beautiful and that um so really funny story when we first podcasted months ago, mm-hmm. uh, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, I had talked about how my husband and I were going to see the Game of Thrones live concert experience yeah. in September. <laughs> well, it's October. So we we were actually at the concert the night that Ramin Jawadi won his Emmy. Oh, yeah, that's so cool. And... I don't know. There was just some extra magic in the air. It was, he played for two and a half hours. Oh, beautiful. It was insane. It was so good. If any of you out there, if it comes in your area and you are Game of Thrones fans, it is so worth it. I know I said it on the last podcast. It's the second time we've gone. We are scouring the internet, waiting for the next one to come around so we can buy tickets again. I got to go too. It's so good. Even if if you have to drive like two hours to get there, it's worth it. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) So worth it. Speaking of the music too, the other day, um, I think it was yesterday actually, I was sitting there and all of a sudden I was craving the the Baratheon theme song. So I started playing it and it's it's the music that loops in the background of the Blu-ray for season one, which is how it got stuck in my head in the first place. And so I'm sitting there and listening to it. And then I, I'm flicking through the, the uh, TV and I put on some YouTube and I watch this commercial for uh, like the move, the new movie about Winston Churchill. I can't remember what it is. And all of a sudden the guy, uh, Stephen Delane, who plays Stephen, uh, who plays Stannis Baratheon pops up on screen. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. I was just listening to the Baratheon music. Perfect timing. That's so funny. That's the, the one that plays when uh, Robert, goes to Winterfell for the first time in the pilot yep. episode, right? Dun, 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 Yeah, really cool song. So we, uh, we're back at the night fort in another scene later on, and Sam busts out these daggers, and they're like, what is that? And he says, dragon glass, we found them at the fist. Someone buried them a long time ago, but someone wanted us to find them. And that's when, you know, Bran's like, what? Why? What are they for? And he's like killing White Walkers. And he tells them about how he killed a White Walker, basically. And uh, it's, well, I suppose someone had to be the first. <laughs> Mira's like, like, but no one's killed them for thousands of years. And he's like, yeah, well, that's me. What are you <laughs> <yeah>. going to do? <laughs> and while they're talking about it, he starts to hand over uh, the dragon glass dagger to Bran and Hodor is shaking his head like, no, no, no. Like he has some kind of strong negative association with the White Walkers and Whites, which is mm-hmm. sort of a hint at the future and what we end up finding out about Hodor and how he became Hodor and 
how he has seen the future and knows about how he has to hold the door and knows about these terrifying beings. So we get a little hint there as he's shaking his head. No, no. Even though he shouldn't even know what white walkers are, you know? Completely. That's such a good catch because I know we talked about that a lot <laughs> in yeah. the Reigns of Castamere episode of, you know, Bran and the past being the future and the future being the past. And, <laughs> And I remember we were just going around and around in circles, but yep. at you know what what's happening is the in the present is changing the future. So Hoder may have relived his death like thirty different times in thirty different ways. So he just never really knows like when, when it's, it's actually come. time. Right? Yeah, it's crazy, man. I also thought it was really cool how uh, Sam decides to, you know, to arm them all with dragon glass. Like, there's obviously a limited supply of dragon glass. They have the daggers and some arrowheads that they found. But uh, he knows that Bran is important enough and that these guys are important enough where he has to give them at least one dagger and a few arrowheads. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like how he says to Mira, for the archer. For the archer. <laughs> yeah, that was a great line. Yeah. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, that shot at the end when they're walking through the the, the tunnel, I, that was just one of the most beautiful shots of the whole whole episode, in my opinion. With the Stark music playing, it just oh, gives I didn't, me yeah, I didn't even goosebumps. Notice music, that's awesome. So yeah, that pretty much wraps up all the uh, Night Fort action. Awesome. How cool. about your number four? My number four is Cersei versus Arya. Oh, very interesting. So... The scene that kind of caught my attention to this, um, Cersei and Arya have been compared a few times, and Tyrion is sitting with Podrick, and he goes, it's not be easy being drunk all the time. If it were, everyone <laughs> would do it. Right, great line. <laughs> and Cersei comes in and tells Pod to leave, and kind of starts poking at Tyrion about being married to Sansa and not you know, producing an heir yet. And Tyrion starts to poke her about her marriage to Sir Loras. And he says some line, I I'm sure you know the line by heart, Duncan, but he goes, there's nothing better Worse than, than a, a late, late blooming philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then he goes to say to her, are you going to, you know, approach your marriage with that same philosophical philosoph spirit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she goes, I won't be marrying Sir Loras. And Tyrion says something. He's, I seem to remember saying something similar about my own marriage. Yeah. And, and then Cersei goes, you're not me. Right. And that totally reminded me of when Arya said to Ned, that's not me. Oh, yeah. And I also remembered when Arya is at Hall serving Tywin. And they're talking about... Rainies and Visenya and Dark Sister, and how Ooh. you know she seemed to be kind of a heroine of Arya's. Um, at some point, I can't remember the exact language that goes on, but he, Tywin says something to Arya, and she goes, "Yeah, well, most girls are idiots," <laughs> and, and Tywin then goes to Arya, "You remind me of my daughter." Oh, that's great. So, I mean, the you're not me, that's not me. And then fast forward to season seven, when Arya comes across Nymeria again. And she goes, I'm, you know, I'm finally going back to Winterfell. Come with me. And Nymeria turns away. 
and you see that like kind of look of pain on Arya's face but then it kind of turns to like this bittersweet smile because she goes that's not you right realizing so this, that she's just like the direwolf like that they're like you know they're, independent. Yeah. they're both independent and can't be controlled or they can't be tied down to a to a group or whatever and i think there are some other you know parallels between cersei and aria i mean they're very strong individuals they i don't want to i don't necessarily want to go as far to say that Arya has a cold heart the way kind of Cersei does but doesn't Melisandre call her a dark heart or something yes I was just gonna say that um she has a dark she's it's a darkness within her I think is what she says and darknesses she's a basically a cold-blooded assassin so yeah I mean as we see in this episode yeah there are a lot of parallels between Cersei and Arya and what I find most interesting is Arya wants to kill Cersei and Sansa's actually the one that said that she learned a great deal from Cersei but mm-hmm. Arya and Cersei's personality kind of parallels each other almost like polar polar wise like yin and yang they're, sort of yeah they're parallel like to some same degree. but different yes exactly there was an so, un- sorry go ahead oh I was just gonna say that was my number four nice I picked up on another parallel this episode um between Arya and another Lannister which is uh, Joffrey oh so there uh Tyrion is walking along with Sansa and he's sort of saying to himself oh yes yes Sir I know Eldrick what Sarsfield and Lord Desmond Craigall Sir Eldrick Sarsfield Lord Desmond Craigall and and she's like what are you doing Sansa says to Tyrion he says I have a list and she says, a list of people you mean to kill, you know? And I, I thought that was funny considering Sansa's sister, Arya, has a list which she's unaware of, you know, at this point. And uh, Tyrion responds, we're laughing at me. Do I look like Joffrey to you? So he's insinuating that Joffrey is the type of person to have uh, a list of people to kill. But it's Arya who has the list of people to kill. So there's another sort of parallel between Joffrey and Arya in this episode which is interesting considering that the two have faced off against each other in battle before. And maybe there's a, maybe an Arya one. (laughs) Yeah. And maybe, maybe there's elements of similarities between Arya and Joffrey as well. You know, that sort of dark Lannister uh, (laughs) vibe that she's got going on. They're, they're fiery. And I, I did have on my notes that, Tyrion has a list is what my bullet point was. So I did pick <laughs> oh, cool. up yeah. on that, but I didn't go as far as to think that, you know, Tyrion said that about Joffrey and Arya's actually the only, well, one of the only characters to have a list. Yeah. Very, yeah, very good. That was a good pickup. Thanks. Yeah, very interesting. Like, the, um, the dynamic between Arya and the Lannisters being that they are kind of her, quintessential enemy but yeah, there are slash, a lot of parallels like counterparts yeah yeah and considering joffrey has definitely inherited some of cersei's traits that it makes sense that there's sort of parallels between her and both of them in this episode totally so my number four is the birth of reek Yes. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Ramsay's tormenting Theon, as is to be expected. Well, the girls weren't lying. You had a good-sized cock. And as he's eating his sausage, what? 
No, oh, no. Pork sausage. You think I'm some sort of savage? <laughs> which is great because he just cut off a guy's dick, which is pretty savage. You know, but I he's not say. he's not eating the dick, so he's not a savage. <laughs> which is hilarious. And uh I mean that was a good sized sausage, so And he like shakes it at him like that <laughs> yeah, yeah. I sent you the other day. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. <laughs> So yeah, if Theon would could possibly confuse that sausage with his dick, he yeah, he had to have had a pretty good sized you know, for sure. <laughs> so uh Ramsey goes on to talk about people talking about phantom limbs. Have you ever heard this concept before about phantom limbs? Yes. Yes. Pretty creepy. I have. Um so he says an amputee might have an itch where his foot used to be. So I've always wondered, do eunuchs have a phantom cock? Next time you think about naked girls, would you feel an itch? And that's when he like shakes the sausage at him with that fucked up <laughs> face, which has become such a, you know, common meme. He's such a psycho. Like yeah. it, he plays it so well. That that actor plays him so well. He gets that like crazy, crazed look in his eyes, and you're just like, dude, you're you're nuts. You're yeah. beyond nuts. Yeah. Um Joffrey and and um, Ramsey both have elements of Caligula in them, I would say. Or if Joffrey is Nero, uh, Ramsey would be Caligula, who's like a whole other level of crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he owns it, too. Like, Joffrey, I think he doesn't really accept or, or know that he's crazy. He's just the king, and he can do whatever he wants, and that's the way it is. Ramsey, like... I get the vibe that he knows he's crazy and he just owns it. Like he the just Joker. He yeah. owns it. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't make jokes. Sorry. <laughs> what did he say? My mom, my mom told me not to throw stones, but my dad taught me to aim at their head. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is a little bit of insight into the way he Roos raised Ramsey, which is certainly not trying to mitigate his, uh, his <laughs> psychopathy <laughs> at all. Oh man! But back to yeah. the uh, the phantom limb thing. Just to, just to say, like, obviously every dude's worst nightmare. After, just after having heard this conversation, I've had like waking nightmares. Just imagining the idea of <laughs> phantom cock. Like, like oh, oh God. I gotta like make sure it's still there. Type thing, you know. Ooh. Oh my God! <laughs> so Theon is like, kill me, <laughs> which goes to show you just how how horribly he's been treated and his mind state at this moment and this is this line i'm realizing right now as i'm looking at it sort of has a double meaning because it's only a few lines later where theon Greyjoy is dead and rams yes. and uh, and reek is born i have you know? this in my notes too that's so great yeah what do you have in your notes i i my specific bullet point says theon says kill me to ramsey and in a way ramsey does kill theon yeah. it is in this scene where Theon dies and is born again as Reek. Yeah, that's so wild. I I didn't I just only put that together right now as I'm sort of looking at the script as we're going along here, and that's a really really artistic and symbolic way of handling this transition that they slipped into the writing, which is pretty slick. Like I've you know seen this scene a bunch of times and I never really noticed that before. Uh, so he's <laughs> like, "Kill me!" And, Sorry, what? Kill me a little louder. Kill me. <laughs> oh God. And those punches that he was throwing at Theon were just brutal. I mean, right. he was oh, laying yeah, it all yeah, yeah. out. He goes up to him and he's like, you don't look like a Theon Greyjoy anymore. That's, that's a name for a Lord, but you're not a Lord. Are you? You're just meat. 
and as he like he's sort of like almost in like a homoerotic way like real close to him and like kind of like touching his chest with his fingertips mm-hmm. as he's saying it he's like you're just meat stinking meat and as he says it his eyes are just glaring um and he just looks totally he's got nuts, that man. like crazy look crazy yeah crazy eyes face. he's yeah he's yeah. really good at playing a complete psychopath which is awesome i love that type of thing so i'm enjoying it <laughs> yeah and, i uh, also um i also had a note for the scene that this is actually the first scene that we finally figure out who ramsey is and why theon is being tortured oh that's nuts yeah yeah so this whole season season three this entire season theon is being tortured and if you're looking at it from the perspective of someone that's never watched the show before this is actually the first scene that because in the scene before Bruce bolton says you know i sent my 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 bastard Ramsey out to flesh him out. And he has his own way of doing things. (laughs) Yeah. He has his own way of doing things. And then it cuts to Ramsey eating the sausage. So we know now that that's Ramsey. Yep. And he had been toying with Reek to Theon at that point, making him guess who he was and where they were and pretending he was right. And then just to torture him more. confused the audiences too, because we're like, who is this guy? You know, are they at the Dreadfort? Are they at Winterfell? Stark. Are they at Karstark? Are they in Umber? Like, Carhold. so this is now we know that that's Ramsey. Well, at this point, Ramsey Snow. Mm-hmm. And we know now that this is why Theon is being tortured. It's because at that point, when Roos sent Ramsey to flush him out, Roos was still a bannerman to Rob Stark. Yep. And um, we sort of get the explanation of um, why he calls him Reek. He says, you, you, you're you just meat, stinking meat. And he like has an epiphany. You Reek. Reek. That's a good name for you. So um, it's slightly different than the books where he had like a childhood friend named Reek who always stunk. And uh, so he sort of, it's implied that he killed him or he died somehow and he sort of adopts theon as his new playmate his new play t- play thing i should say and calls him <laughs> reek and makes him like n- never lets him bathe and except for like special occasions where he he bathes him personally himself and it's really weird you know that's creepy yeah so he's like what's your name you know reek that's that's a good name for you what's your name theon Greyjoy. What's your name? Boom. <laughs> yeah, smack. <laughs> What's your name? <laughs> Imp slap. <laughs> Theon Greyjoy, please. <laughs> and Theon, Alfie Allen, man, he's a great actor. He's so pitiful and desperate and just very convincing up on that, that X, on that Bolton cross, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very, it's kind of symbolic if you follow like Christianity or Catholicism and Jesus being on the cross. I'm by no means comparing Theon (laughs) to Jesus, but it is kind of like a rebirth moment for Theon. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's sitting there spread on an, well this, in this case it's an X, but you know, Jesus was spread out on a cross and you know, Jesus died. Theon is I mean, his body stays alive, but the the physical, the soul of Theon kind of dies in that moment. And then, obviously, Easter Sunday, Jesus is 
resurrected. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think maybe and not later, later Theon is resurrected too, kind of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, <laughs> I think seasons. he's just repeating. After three seasons, is that a coincidence? Three days, three seasons? Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Because I think at this point, when he says his name is Reek, he's just kind of doing what Ramsey is telling him to avoid getting punched in the face again. Right, right. But it isn't until a little bit later in the later, you know, just a couple uh, episodes where the, later where he actually kind of takes ownership of being Reek. Right, where like the brainwashing really sets in and he like is Reek. Yeah, so there's a little bit of a parallel there. And, you know, again, I'm not saying that Theon is like Jesus Christ, but there course, is a little bit of a of parallel of dying spread across a wooden cross or wooden X and, you know, being resurrected into something else later later down the road. Yep, very interesting. Good catch. Um, yeah, and Reek is born. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Creepy Reek. Yeah, so what's, uh, what's your number three? My number three is Gendry starts rowing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. my God. So it's a little bit more in depth than this. Um, I kind of just titled my my numbers, but I'm kind of encompassing this as um, when Davos and Gendry kind of form a fatherly and son-like relationship. And I really love when Davos and Gendry are in the dungeon and they're connecting over being from, from Flea Bottom and Gendry's kind of testing Davos because he heard Stannis call him Lord L earlier. Sir, yeah. Or Sir, yeah. And Davos goes on to explain that he never wanted to become a Lord, but he did it to give his son a better life. Mm -hmm. And he knew it was the right thing to do. And I think... I was born in Flea Bottom, just like you. Yeah, their, their shit flowed out my you know front door. And, and they both I, realize it's the same. They both figure out Jin Alley at the same Jin Alley, you know, moment. Yeah. They say it in unison. And that's when he knows it's it's true, you know? It's true. And then and I, He even turns it on him, too. He's like, the street of steel with your armor and your knights. Pff, you lived in the fancy part of town. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. Um, but I think it kind of made Davos think that, you know... This plays kind of, sorry, I was looking through my notes again. This That's plays kind of a huge role in Davos's decision to set Gendry free. Yeah. He is, again, sacrificing, you know, his best interest so that what I, I will call Gendry is kind of like his surrogate son can escape and live, you know, potentially a better life. Yeah, same thing. He's he has, feels this sympathy that he felt for his own child, where he you know he, he doesn't he does what he doesn't want to do, which is become a, a lord or a, you know a knight, and uh, in in the favor of his son to give him a better life. And the same thing here, he sees another poor kid from Flea Bottom who deserves a better life, and he does what he's what he has to do to set him free and give him the opportunity to have that life. You know. Yeah, and he also knows that he's Robert Baratheon's bastard son, so the life that you know that he could have maybe. He has the potential to maybe make it a little bit farther than someone from Jin Alley. So um, I do love when Davos is getting him into the boat and he's like, have you ever been in a boat before? Do you know how to swim? And Gendry's like, no. <laughs> no. And he goes, well, don't fall out. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't. And just he, sends him on his way. <laughs> he's rowing for years. 
Yeah, and so it just kind of continues because Davos is now in front of Stannis, and Davos completely does not deny that he set Gendry free. And I think, you know, being that Davos got his fingers chopped off at the knuckle from Stannis, he absolutely knows that Stannis is going to sentence him to death. But Davos is a smart cookie because he knows that, yeah, he has, Stannis has kind of a temper and he's quick-witted. And so he sentences sentences him to death, but doesn't unname him as a Hand of the King. Right, right. That's so funny. (laughs) So Davos is like, I understand that, but, you know, since you haven't unnamed me Hand of the King... (laughs) Um, I have to advise against it. And he kind of drops this, you know, massive bomb, which is Maester Eamon's letter on him. Yeah. And, you know, Malisandra's pissed. She's like in the back. She was like, how many people have you been, you know, you know, sentenced to die just because you like let one, one, one kid bastard go. boy. Yeah. And she, she throws the letter into the fire and does her creepy like little, red woman stuff and, and she it's goes, just like the- instant change though you know oh yeah i mean you can see it in her face she's like "Ooh, okay and she goes the war of five kings means nothing yeah the true the true war lies in the north death marches on the wall and you know stannis kind of replies to her and she goes he's right you need him he has a role to play in all of this yeah she does a total 180 there like, yeah, it just shows you Stannis how she's laughs. open to change her mind and her plan based based on new information, which she's is an important characteristic. Unforgivingly, to have. yeah, she's unforgiving, unforgivingly devoted to the Red God. Mm-hmm. And I love when Stannis laughs and he goes, "You've been saved by that Fire God you like to mock." Yeah, which is interesting <laughs> too. There's a point right like in the scene with a, with the three of them prior to this where they're discussing. Um, like the plant, like, you know, Stannis wants to kill Gendry. And uh, actually, we'll get into that later. We'll get into that later. Sorry. So I do have a question for you. What do you think Davos has already fulfilled this role? Or do you think he has yet to fill this role that he plays in this in this war? Uh, I think he's played a massive role in it just in this single episode. Because um, I, I think Gendry's going to be important. So saving Gendry is big he's i think there's more for him to come but i think that this is like his first moment of like really being like a, a impactful on the on the story if he hadn't found and read that letter stannis may never have gone north saved the night's watch from being eradicated by mance raider and the wildlings the north would be lost potentially already so it's pretty crazy yeah, I think he has maybe multiple roles to play. That's why I was asking you that I question. Uh, I think you nailed it. Like his role is right then and there to provide this information to Stannis to get Lady Malisandra on board to go north. But now he's also advising John. Yeah, and he's pivotal. You know, it, it's he's a huge propeller of the motion of the story to get all parties together and go fight yeah. the, the dead. It, agreed. My number one is actually Davos, protector of the realm and the individual. So we'll get into oh, that a little bit okay. more later on. Okay, cool, <laughs> cool. Yeah. yeah, so that was my number three. Uh, awesome. What's yours? 
My number three is Arrivals Home. Okay. We have a number of people arriving to their homes in this episode. We have um, Sam and Gilly arriving back to Castle Black. So Sam gets home. We have John arriving back home to Castle Black. We also have uh, Jamie arriving back to King's Landing with Brienne. Oh, yes, you are right. So um, in a, a classic heartbreaking moment, John is getting water at a stream or something, and he hears like a, a, a bow cock, you know? And he looks up, and he knows what's coming, and he's like, you grit, you know I didn't have a choice, you know? It's fucking brutal, because we know that that he loves a grit, you know? And he, he says so much in, in a couple lines, but he's like, you knew who I was, what I am, you know, I have to go home now. I know you won't hurt me, right? And she she responds with her catchphrase, "You know nothing, you know John, nothing Snow. John Snow." And in this case, it's true because she does hurt him, you know. <laughs> but but yeah, much but she's like, supposed uh, to be like this prodigy with a bow. So I mean, right, she right. Could, she's like five feet from him, so she's just like picking him off. She's yeah. just making him feel pain. She's like Jared Leto's Joker. I'm not gonna kill you. I'm just gonna hurt you really bad. <laughs> oh you do that way too good, Duncan. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was funny, man. She she proves him wrong immediately by sticking him with three quarrels, <laughs> three arrows right through the back and the leg. And oh man, one of those looks like it probably punctured his lung, which it can't have because he heals pretty well, pretty quickly. Too fast. You yeah. know, everyone heals too fast in this show. Ario with that whole gut stab. Oh, I know. And whatnot, you know. The whole time warp, I just kind of let it go because I would rather just get to the, the good scenes than watch them travel or watch them heal or... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, you know what I mean? Yeah, so it's like, I, feel you. I just let it go. It's it would just whatever. drag the story down for a while. So, yeah. I, I mean, it's more important, in, I think, in like the novel because you have the space to write those details because you're reading it and you're imagining it in your mind but from a you know kind of cinematic perspective mm-hmm. i don't want to watch aria laying in a bed for six weeks while she heals exactly yeah so uh there's been the consistent theme um of love being the death of duty throughout the series we've heard it described in a number of cases under different circumstances applied to different people and um you know, who is it? It was John himself who was telling Maester Eamon, like, my, my dad would do what's right, you know, and he's one in 10,000 men. And uh, we, we get to see John, you know, sometimes people make a, an important decision and then they end up changing their mind. This is John's opportunity to change his mind and go back with the grit. But he's, he's, he stays steadfast to the mission. He says, you know, like, she says, you know nothing, Jon Snow. And he's like, I do know some things. I know I love you. I know you love me but I have to go home now, you know? It's so brutal, because this, in this case, duty is the death of love. I mean, it's, it, he, he doesn't stop loving her, so it's not like really the death of love, but their, their bond is broken, sort of, like they're no longer together. Sure. They're no longer able to act on it. And I just have written down in my notes, hell hath no fury. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah, true statement. <laughs> that, a, that a woman scorned and... Uh, she decides to just injure him really badly and let him suffer <laughs> instead of killing him like she could. Oh, man. So, yeah, that was pretty brutal. And he eventually ri- arrives back at Castle Black, slumped over on his horse and punctured with arrows. And he he falls off his horse 
right on the arrows. And I'm, every time it happens, I'm thinking, oh, God, those must just like, like Ugh, puncture right even through worse through him, you know, and oh, it's gnarly. So they drag him in and he turns out he's alive and home. So that's awesome. The, uh, and Sam even says that he goes, you're home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I didn't even notice You're that. home now or something like that. You're yeah. home now, John. He goes, Pip, Sam. And he goes, don't worry, you're home now. Yep, and uh, the bromance continues. <laughs> so uh, next, you know, we have, actually it happened beforehand, but next for our coverage, Sam arrives back to Castle Black with Gilly. And uh, it's so funny. He says to the blind man, I know how this must look. <laughs> I have that in my notes. <laughs> and uh, Maester Eamon's face is like, uh, okay. <laughs> oh, man. So great. And uh, so they're, 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 sorry. Maester Eamon is like, uh, I, like, every man who joins the Night Watch renounces all former titles. Among other things, <laughs> Sam, you know, like <laughs> celibacy, basically, right? Um, technically, as Sam points out, though, it's not that you vow to be celibate; it's that you vow not to father children, right? Yep. So uh, that's you know he's playing it by uh, by the exact wording, which is pretty cool. He's very lawyer-like. Um, so he asks Maester Eamon asks uh, Gilly, "What's your name, Gilly?" Oh, for the Gilly flower, which is kind of cool. I wonder what a Gilly flower looks like. I wonder if it's even a real flower. I don't yeah. even know. I mean, yeah, yeah. It, it could also be like a Westerosi name for a flower that we have uh, in real life. Kind of like how they, he calls uh, crocodiles lizard lions, you know? Yes, sort of I will like, Google it while you're talking. Okay. <laughs> so uh, Gilly's stumbling over Maester, calling him Master, and it's it's funny. And uh, Maester Eamon thinks that the baby is might be Sam's. Which is, is great. How long have they been gone for? I mean, god damn. Probably months. Yeah, so, uh, and the child? He, she hasn't chosen a name yet. His name is Sam, she says. <laughs> it's Harley. Do you remember the oath you swore when you joined this order? He's not my child, Maester Heyman. And he goes on to explain that she's one of Craster's wives, and um, he he says how much he, re- he, re- he does remember the oath and starts reciting it, which is great. And this is a really important part in the series as well, because it seems like Sam has this revelation, even before John has the revelation, that I am the shield that guards the realms of men. You know, and he repeats it, the realms of the men. Realms. Yeah. That means her as well as us. You know, we didn't build 500 miles of ice wall 700 feet high to keep out men. The night is gathering, Mr. Eamon. I've seen it, and it's coming for all of us. And that is fucking creepy as hell. But Yeah, and John actually echoes the same sentiment when he actually lets the wildlings through the wall. Right, they both independently sort of come to this realization mm-hmm. that it's, it is. It's about protecting men. It's not about protecting the Seven Kingdoms, per se, from everything north. There's people up there who are just as much people as they are who need protection from the the white the night king and the whites and everything you know and even ingrid says this to john when they kind of like start arguing before they hook up she's like we've been here the whole time your people are the ones that just threw up the wall and said you're on this side and we're on that right. side planting seeds for john's revelation mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so i will say gilly flower is a real flower 
Oh, nice. It's the carnation or a similar plant of the genius Dianthus. And it's oh. really pretty. <laughs> cool. I'll have to look it up later, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's all, that's great. Um, so Maester Eamon extends the hospitality of Castle Black to, to Gilly and says that she and her son will be guests for the time being. And because they certainly can't send her back north of the wall. You know, Maester okay. Eamon's on board with the whole realms of men thing, which is cool. Of course he is. You know, he's like the wise old man. So uh, she's like, I can cook and clean and I can, he's good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, which is funny and this is our first moment potentially in the series where um sam exudes confidence he says samwell fetch a quill and inkwell i hope your penmanship is better than your sword play and sam full of confidence miles better miles better. you know like <laughs> it may be the first time we really see sam um confident because up until he's like excited about it yeah he's like super stoked so uh Eamon, based on the way he can hear everything really well knows he struck a like a chord with him here he's like oh i'm gonna have him do all my writing you know from, from now on basically so that's kind of cool someone calls upon sam for his true skill set and uh he we're informed we find out that there's 44 ravens and they better all be fed because all of them are flying tonight so sam knows he's got his work cut out for him writing 44 little scrolls so that's and flying all the ravens out because isn't his one of his jobs to take care of the ravens yeah i think so yep so that's pretty hardcore and then uh our last arrival home is sir jamie who walks like through bum. the gates. Yeah, he walks through the <laughs> gates with um with uh Brienne and somebody calls him like says he calls him farm boy or something. <laughs> and then nobody recognizes him because he's disfigured and he's got long he's hair mess. and yeah, he's a total mess. Step aside, country boy, people working here, you know, and he just kinda rolls with it and they enter King's Landing again and he walks up into the red keep or whatever and enters Cersei's chamber where she's lamping out chilling and and I'm and, sorry but Cersei doesn't strike me as a woman who would be sitting there playing with seashells like reminiscing about the past it was just kind of like a weird like she's sitting there like smiling looking at a seashell and I know Casterly Rock is by the sea but it's, That's so funny. For me, it's so out of character for her. I didn't even like, notice what she was doing. Totally I, I feel like she should me. be like pacing around and drinking wine and like looking out the window worried. And she's like sitting there like, oh, look at this pretty seashell and smiling. Maybe and Tywin like, made Pycelle like, give her some nightshade too to calm her down. I don't know. But it just <laughs> like I know that they were setting it up so, so Jamie would surprise her. But it just... It felt I, forced, yeah. It felt really out of character, kind of similarly to when Arya is walking across the bridge and the waif comes up behind her when she gets stabbed. Mm -hmm. She's like, do 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 do. I'm just gonna walk out in the open across this bridge, like right, 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 right. Do, do, do. You know, totally. I know it's a setup, but it was kind of that same feeling. Like this is out. This is a little out of character of Cersei. Actually, it's really out of character of Cersei. <laughs> and uh, another sort of out of character thing is, you know, Cersei's always got something to say. You know, if yeah. anything, she's always got some kind of retort, something snide and snarky and snarky. sarcastic to say. But she's so stunned here by the return of Jamie and seeing his 
disfigurement. He walks in, Cersei, you know, and she turns and she's at a loss for words. It hangs for like 10 seconds without her saying anything, just in horror and shock and, you know, disbelief before it cuts I mean, to the next scene. It's kind of crazy, like, because he, he was so groomed and handsome and yeah. strong and like this crazy good knight. And then he walks in and he just looks haggard straight up mess i mean he's missing a hand he's he's in in rags robes yeah black rags and i think she's just like stunned that he's there in person Mm -hmm. and then she sees like his what he's wearing and how haggard he looks and then she obviously sees his hand and she's just like what the fuck (laughs) what just happened (laughs) yeah and it's actually uh we had Two Lannisters stunned into silence in this episode as well, because um, after the the small council meeting, um, Tywin basically tells, you know, Tyrion's like, "When have you ever done something that that was wasn't in your interest, but solely for the benefit of the family?" Right? And he says, "The day you that you were born, I wanted to carry you into the sea and let the waves wash you away. Instead, I let you live, and I." Brought you up as my son because you're a Lannister. And Tyrion is like, holy shit, like shocked into silence. And Tywin storms out and he's just left standing there silent as well. And Tyrion's the same way. He's always got some remark. You know, he's always got to come back, something to say. Tywin is like the only person who can ever shock him into silence. <laughs> yeah, he does it repeatedly. Seriously. It's, you know, yeah. he knows that there's like no love lost between the two. Like the Ty- Tywin doesn't like him. But it's another thing to know that like from the moment he was born, Tywin wanted him dead, you know? Yeah, I actually, that's actually a part of my number two, but I'll just bring it up now since we're talking about it. Because Tywin's yeah. specific language was, I brought you up as my son. And I know there's a lot of, and I'm going to shout out to Sir Patrick, tinfoil theories <laughs> out there. Crinkle, crinkle, crinkle. <laughs> about Tyrion possibly being a Targaryen. So oh, yeah. I th- I thought those were very specific words to use. I brought you up as my son, not I brought you up because you were my son or you are my son. Right. There's another point, too, where he tells him, it was, I think it was in season one or season two, when he finally shows up to King's Landing in the first place. And he's like, I, you know, let you live in my house and wear my sigil because I couldn't prove that you weren't mine. You know, exactly, exactly. But speaking of that, there's a really, really awesome essay which everybody should read or listen to. Um, there's it, it contains book information, but it's guy it's by this guy LML Lucifer means Lightbringer, and he has a this series called the Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. And he basically has this whole essay called Tyrion Targaryen, which breaks down everything and all the evidence that that Tyrion may be a Targaryen and the symbolism that comes to play to to strengthen the the um, you know the evidence and everything like that. It's really cool. Check it out. Um, it's in podcast form as well. The Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire. Definitely subscribe and download it. Highly highly recommend it. Yeah, I've listened to some of those episodes, and nice. I don't want to give too much of the books, you know, the yeah, spoilers yeah, away. But, you know, Tywin's wife was known to be visited by the king. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so there is some overlapping of time where she gets sent away from Cast- Castle Rock. She's at Castle Rock. So there's really no way to prove that Tyrion 
is or is not Tywin's son. I know in the books he's much more um, blonde, dis- disfigured <laughs> and blonde, oh, yeah, that's and he true. has a. He has a purple That's eye, you. which is a Targaryen trait. Right, yeah, he's got two different colored eyes, which is And he cool. has like a, you know, like a funky nose. And um, the, I know in some of the, the lore. Blackwater. Yeah, I know. No in some nose, of the basically. Lore, <laughs> yeah, in some of the lore, the Targaryens, because they were inbred so much that they were known to have a lot of disfigured children. Like Maylee's the monstrous who had like two yeah. heads, right? Something like yes. that. Yes. So, and then the other thing that I picked up on in that specific scene is he goes, because you are a Lannister. And I felt like he was saying this more to like convince himself that he he was like pissed that he had to say it. Brutal. Like, because you're a Lannister. And he's just like, I I felt like he's thinking in his mind, but he's like really not a Lannister. And then he gets so pissed, he walks away. Mm -hmm. And that's like the end of the scene. So I, I, I picked up on that for sure that was a very interesting dialogue between air quotes father and son (laughs) yeah (laughs) and two two lannisters shocked into silence in one episode it's pretty pretty wild. yeah awesome yeah definitely cool so what's your uh numero dos numero dos i am the king (laughs) yes his most (laughs) famous line Oh my God, Joffrey. Okay, speaking so about the small council meeting, I very Varys and his facial expressions make every small council meeting that much more entertaining. Oh yeah, I keep, I forgot to look at him basically. Basically, this whole meeting, I gotta go back. And okay, watch it just so for when <laughs> when Joffrey says that, he like closes his eyes and like backs up, like God, like. <laughs> he says it like right over him and he's just like you're a loud obnoxious little shit um every small council meeting i feel brings a lot to the table like momentum of the story wise it's it's a place of very strong dialogue not in just this episode but in every episode that the small council gets together mm-hmm. i feel strategy is revealed yep love the small council meetings yeah and again Varys with his facial expressions they just make him that more entertaining everybody's facial expressions after like during these these uh conflicts between joffrey and tywin everybody's got their own like thing going on Tyrion is kind of like just interested to see what happens Varys is like oh god bad move cersei he's just looking around like oh my god and Pycelle's just happy to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's just trying not to get his, you know, keeping his head down so his flower doesn't get lopped off. His, his yeah, and then, the I mean, shorter. Joffrey's outburst. My father run the, won the real war. He killed Prince Rhaegar while you were hiding under Castle Rock. And everyone is just like... <gasps> Dead silent. It was just like crickets. And yeah. and Tywin's glare is just oh, ice cold. God. Even even Arctic Joffrey in this moment, he kind of stares back at Tywin for the first time because the last time we saw them kind of go head to head was when Joffrey's trying to scold Tywin that he should be he should be counseled on these matters. Right. And Joffrey kind of cowers in that situation and slinks in this situation, down in the Iron Throne, you have been counseled. Yeah, he's standing there. <laughs> He's standing there, like, looking at his grandfather, like, what are you going to do about it? Interesting. I got a different impression. 
Oh, interesting. What was your impression? I got the impression that, you know, he, he goes through his rant <laughs> and looks over at Tywin, who's just grilling him, and he's kind of like, oh, fuck, what did I just do? <laughs> you know? Oh, really? Okay, yeah, that was, the, that was the impression I got. We'll have to go back and, uh, and maybe take, oh, I'll have to go back standing. and take a look. I maybe got a different vibe versus like when he was cowering in the throne. It was just so visually strong that right, scene right. versus the scene. It was more of just like a back and forth of staring. Yeah, because his, his physical posture, he's like standing and like leaning forward towards Tywin, but then his face kind of, I feel like, is, I, at least the way I remember it, he like, he's like, oh shit, <laughs> like what the fuck did I just do? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and then I love, you know, instead of provoking a toddler like tantrum he goes the king is tired (laughs) (laughs) which is so much worse he just like completely deflates joffrey's Mm -hmm. send him to his chambers (laughs) come along i'm not tired (laughs) i'm not tired (laughs) (laughs) what does he say uh grand maester perhaps some essence of nightshade to help him sleep yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh my God, that's so funny. Every you know, time I hear it's... nightshade, I think of uh, a nightmare before Christmas. Deadly nightshade. Oh yeah, good that's one. I, always makes me I just loved how Tywin just diffused the situation, and being that I have a very two-year-old right now. Yep. <laughs> diffusing and... toddler-like tantrums sometimes just silence is the best way to go about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Just don't even acknowledge it. Yeah, and same just with like, like a chirping bird that's trying to get your attention. You know, you, you, exactly. you encourage it, and they'll learn to learn that that's how what to do to get your attention. Yeah, and so I I do love when Tywin says, "Any man that needs to say I am the king is no true king," because it's very interesting. Because I'll make sure know... you understand that when I've won your war for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and Tywin, we all know Tywin's the true power. Oh yeah, and. I find it very interesting because Tywin is actually the one sitting at the head of the table, not Right, yeah, not the king, yep. And what's more interesting is Tyrion is sitting at the other side of the head of the table. Remember how that sort of came about? Yes, when he drags the chair over (laughs) to be as far away from his dad as possible. (laughs) Yeah, so he like sort of assumed that seat for himself, which is kind of cool. The counterpart, you know? Yeah, and then Varys kind of ties this together when he tries to get Shay out of town and tells her that Tyrion is one of the few people alive that could make this country a better place. And then yeah. inevitably in her season... Her presence is a danger to him, and it turns yeah. out he's right. As she you know, solidifies the nail in his uh, jail cell. Yeah, and oh. then, um, you know, eventually Tyrion does become the Hand of the Queen in a very powerful seat, you know, in very Westeros. So there are two opposing powers... Kind of yeah. sitting across from each other, and then Joffrey is just frolicking about, being yeah. a psycho in this in the scene. Tyrion, Davos, and Sam all have this like vast intelligence that's super important. Sam's got the book smarts. Davos has the street smarts, and Tyrion has both. Totally. So you know? that you know, it's just. Very interesting, the whole dynamic of the of the small council. And I love when just to continue on in this scene, because there's so there's honestly so much in this scene. Yeah. Um, 
you Go know, when it. Joffrey tells Tyrion, like, Rob Stark is dead, I love how Peter Dinklage plays this because Tyrion's looking at Joffrey trying to figure out what this bad poetry letter is. <laughs> Rosalind then- caught a fine fat trout. Her brothers <laughs> gave her a pair of wolf pelts for her wedding. Signed, Walder Frey. And T- Tyrion, of course, is easily smart enough to figure this out. Um, it's explained by Joffrey, you know, purely for the audience, for the for the sh- for the show watchers to uh, sure. to show that they're sending coded messages and whatnot, which is pretty cool. But I love that after Joffrey says Rob Stark is dead, Tyrion like glances over at Tywin. Oh yeah, and then like who looks back the at Joffrey, like he totally knows immediately who gave those orders. And then the the famous line. Monsters are dangerous, and just now kings are dropping like flies is honestly a, a huge foreshadow to Joffrey's actual death because he's actually the next king to die, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, that's totally right. Yeah, he's uh, yeah, the wedding just coming up in a couple episodes. And then, you know, Tyrion's blamed for his murder and that. Oh, yeah, big time. That quote comes back to bite him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is one of the two times where he's had a blatant threat against the king, you know, just the other day with... You'll be fucking your own bride with a wooden cock. And then uh, this time, just a couple episodes later, where he says, you know, kings are dropping like flies. He's like, you know, it's not the coolest. Like like Dave Chappelle, Chappelle said about smoking a cigarette on a bus one time. Like, it's not the coolest shit I ever did. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and then just to kind of keep going, I love when Tyrion's like, you just sent the most powerful king in Westeros to bed without his <laughs> oh, supper. Yeah. And Tywin goes... You think a crown gives you power, and you give him a nightshade too. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, you know, and I just I love when Tyrion says he's all for cheating at war, but killing them at a wedding was just wrong. And I felt like this was kind of again a hint to the guest right, because clearly they're there, they're eating, they're breaking bread, they're drinking wine together. Yeah, and they're pretty much just hammering it in for us that like you do not break guest right. Yeah. Exactly. Like you cheat at war, you kill people, you murder, you rape, you plunder, but you don't kill guests under your roof. That's just one of the most severe crimes you can commit. Exactly. And I do, I do get Tywin's justification. Why is it more noble to kill 10,000 in battle over a dozen at dinner? You know, it shows Tywin's personality because he is cold-bloodedly rational. He's kind of almost, in a way, like a utilitarian, but... Yeah, that makes sense. I heard uh, somebody else say that, too, recently, and one of the um, like behind-the-scenes things or something yes, makes sense. but putting the Lannisters first. You know, in his mind, he kind of figures that he did the realm a favor because if Tywin would have won the war the more noble way... Tens of thousands of people would have died, and the the dozen at dinner would have died anyways because <laughs> true. he would have won. So everybody very, would have been killed anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. But at the same time, it's been kind of beaten into the audience at this point. Like that's that's beyond cheating. That's going against. Yeah, it's like really, really bad. Kind of this really bad. It's really taboo, beyond taboo. It's sort of like Machiavellian, the way that Tywin is basically saying that the ends justify the means and that it's worth it to save all those lives, even if you have to violate the most like sacred principle. <laughs> exactly. So that was my number two. What about your number two? Let's see. Uh, before we get into it, a couple more things about this scene really quickly. There's um, sort of an interesting parallel or comparison that we get with Ramsey. 
when um, Tywin is sort of pressuring Tyrion to get Sansa pregnant. And he says, one way or another, you will get that girl pregnant. And Tyrion responds saying, I will not rape her. And uh, sort of obviously alludes to what happens with Ramsay, who does rape her. Oh, know. yeah. Yeah. So that's a, sort of an interesting parallel, just stark contrast between the two. Parallel between the two. Sure, sure. And uh, it's just kind of interesting. Tywin thinks he's doing everything for the better of his family and to improve their position. But he just, it's all about himself, you know, and he doesn't give a shit about what his kids think at all, really. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I also have one more. It's just a general note, but it kind of ties in to this area is I find it interesting that there's a little bit of a parallel between Stannis and Tywin. They think very similarly um, in this episode. Stannis says, what is one bastard boy against a king kingdom? Uh, basically, it's kind of the same thought process as Tywin. It's sacrificing a few to save the many. And that's sort of that Machiavellian thing. Also, the ends justify the means where they're willing to kill people or make sacrifices to uh, for victory. And the victory justifies the breach of moral code along the way. So what do we got next? My number two? Yes, your number two. Okay, so my number two is Arya's first adult kill. Nice. And, the uh, first man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is badass. So she and the Hound are cruising along, doing their whole, uh, you know, awesome duo thing. And uh, she hears this group of Frey soldiers. I think they're Freys or maybe Boltons. Who knows? Um, I think they were Freys, if I'm not mistaken. All right. So they're talking about inside stuff from inside the the red wedding reception that you could only know about if you were actually there for the reception part right so he's talking about how black walder shut catlin right up quick and uh how none of the starks had much to say about the end of that meal and he's talking about how the hardest part was to get the wolf's head to stay on rob's body and they're asking you sewed it on and he says i did and right at this moment, Arya jumps off her horse, you know, no fucks given. She's a woman of action. And she circles around the back of these guys. And he's explaining how you know, they're like, I bet there were a thousand men claiming it was them who sewed it on. And he's like, well, it was me, you know, and Malcolm and Talbot. And uh, as he's going through his monologue, Arya's creeping up behind him. And the other Frey soldiers kind of stop in their tracks. I mean, they're not moving. They sort of stop looking at him and start all looking up at Arya like, what the fuck is going on? She approaches and she's pretending to be a hungry little girl, basically, which sort of foreshadows her um, her game of faces in the future as she, as becoming a training, faceless yeah, man. Becoming a faceless man. I have that man, in my notes yeah. too. Nice. Yeah. They pretend to be another person and come up with a backstory and everything. So she's pretending to be hungry and all this, or maybe she is hungry. Who knows? To get close enough so that she can off this guy, and she, uh, she, he's, she's like, I'm hungry. Mind if I keep warm? And he's like, Fuck off. And she's <laughs> like, I've got money, and she pulls out the faceless man coin. So everybody's like, Oh shit! We all know what it is. Probably signifying that death is approaching. Definitely. And they don't recognize the coin because it's only like 
certain initiated people who uh, would know what it is, basically. So uh, <laughs> she she's like, it's worth a lot. And he reaches out to grab it and she drops it. Sorry. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> little shit. And as he as he uh, reaches over and bends over to grab it, she pushes his head down, pulls out a dagger and just stabs him repeatedly in the back. It's so hardcore. And is it the back or his neck? I thought it was his neck. It's like, yeah, his neck and his back, like Ugh, just all over. It was you bad. Know? It was gross. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> and uh, this is funny because it this happens in the books, but in a totally different context. Not with this guy, not at this place. Totally different time and place. So uh, it's that was worth noting, I thought. Um, read the books to find out exactly when and how that goes down. It's awesome also, I will say. More is at stake. And uh, it's, yeah, it's a more interesting scenario, I think. But here it's great because it's like Arya gets a little bit of revenge immediately uh, for somebody who fucking sewed the the dead head of, of Grey Wind onto her brother, you know. She gets a little taste of justice before coming back for Walder and his whole house at the end of season six or the beginning of season seven, I can't remember. Yeah, I also have written down that she steals the Hound's blade without yep. him even knowing. And i that's what kind of caught me into, you know, the, the faceless man. And I love that scene where she kind of, she picks the coin back up off the floor and her hands are bloody. Like she oh, has all I this blood on that. her hands. And uh, what else was I going to say about this? Oh, I love how... The hound goes, was that your first, you know, the first man that you've killed? And she goes, the the first man. And I felt like that really was very close to the first men. Yeah, I thought that too. Being a a descendant of the first men, being that she's a Stark, I thought that was kind of a nice little parallel. Yeah, I liked that too. And of course, it's also hearkening back to her murder of the stable boy as she escaped from King's Landing. She stabbed yes. him right through the gut yes. with her with needle. So he was a but boy. But he was a little boy. Yeah, That's yeah. right. So this yep. is the first man. <laughs> and he Very has a classic good. response too. Next time you're going what is he say? Uh, next time you're going to do something like that, tell me first. <laughs> Instead of don't, you know, or something. He's just like, just tell, just tell me, you know, so I'm not surprised and I'm ready to kill everybody else that needs to be killed after you fucking do something crazy. Because obviously all those guys were going to try to kill her. The hound had to step up and he smites them handily one by one. Oh, for sure. Oh, in beautiful fashion. <laughs> it's great. And then we get a cool moment uh, to wrap up this scene. Kind of a beautiful moment, actually, where, where Arya picks up the coin, like you were saying, and she holds it up in front of her heart with both hands gripping it and recites a prayer to the red god, Valar Mugulis. Valar Mugulis. Yeah, so cool. Really just a beautiful little moment. Yeah, great number two. I loved that scene because it really, you know, again, is starting to propel her character forward that she's, you know, like we were talking about earlier, she's kind of, a cold-blooded killer like she jumps off that horse she is completely knowing what she's doing oh yeah and she's gonna go for it and she has no sympathy because this asshole is talking about sewing the dire wolf's head onto her dead brother's body and she just goes for it i mean without any reservations whatsoever 
Yeah, totally. She doesn't care that they're outnumbered. She doesn't care that she's a little girl and they're full grown men. She doesn't care that the hound is still on the horse. You know what I mean? She just goes for it. She's a badass. She's a badass. She really is. Yeah. I love her. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> so what's your uh, number one? My number one is Misa. Misa. <laughs> Misa. <laughs> so I, I know we talked a little bit about this at the very beginning of this podcast, but I love that level of anxiousness that was kind of on her face as she was waiting right. outside the gates waiting for what's she gonna happen kind of worried yeah i mean it was i don't know if it was worried but more anticipation are they gonna come are they not gonna come you know what if i didn't say enough what if i didn't do enough and yeah. then all of a sudden the doors they will come your open. Grace. yeah when they're ready and perhaps they I didn't loved- want to be conquered you didn't conquer them. You liberated them. And then she, she has this great line. People learn to love their chains. And it yeah, that's, reminded that's me my of, note. Yeah, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, that's okay. That's okay. Keep keep going, doing the story thing, because I love it. I love it, listening back to it. <laughs> it just, re- that line reminded, made me think of two things. First of all, Stockholm Syndrome, which is like when a captor ends up sort of like falling in love, or captive ends up like sort of falling in love with their captor. And they develop like a relationship where they learn to love their servitude, essentially. And it also made me think of Plato's allegory of the cave. Yes. I love uh, Plato's allegory of the cave. Oh, my gosh. So cool. Where there's like people chained up in a cave and Mm -hmm. they they think that that's all there is, basically. It's their reality. And then they're let out and they're like, they're they're seeing colors for the first time. They're seeing their bodies for the first time. Right. They they, they see the shadows dancing on the wall and they think that that's all there is. Yes. I love that. If you, all of you out there in Game of Microphones land, it's (laughs) worth a read. It's very... It's very old and it's very good. It's very powerful about freedom and uh, yeah, it's it's really great. Perception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, perception. Yeah, somehow there's another quote. Quote. I can't remember who said it, but some something like none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe that they are free. Exactly, and I I do love that people learn to love their change quotes uh, or their chains <laughs> quote <laughs> because. You know, she loved her brother blindly for so long, and her brother was really her captor. And she knows kind of what it's like to not know that there is something better, like kind of what we're talking about with the allegory of the cave. Right. Is they see these dancing shadows on the wall, and they're completely okay with that until they go out to this world of color and texture and smells. Realize and what they've been missing realize what they've been missing and it's hard to like that's the thing too is that somebody who if it's all they know somebody escapes from the cave right they come back and they're trying to tell you the people in the cave like there's all this stuff out there there's light there's all this no one believes no one believes it yeah they're just like you're crazy yeah what are you smoking Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so perception is key yeah and she echoes this to her her people when they finally come out because Masande, which I feel is kind of bold of her, she kind of just steps in and starts talking about, you know, this is Daenerys, stormborn of the house Targaryen. It is you that you owe your freedom to. And she goes, no, no. And, you know, Masande kind of steps back and Daenerys starts talking and basically she says, 
I cannot give you your freedom. You have to take it for yourself, which is kind of exactly what she did. Right. Freedom isn't get free. Out of, exactly. You have to, no one can give you your freedom. You have to take it. And then that's when the big, amazing, goosebumpy scene, the one guy, he mm-hmm. reaches up and he goes, Misa. And his Misa. daughter. <laughs> and she's kind of like, what are they saying? Yeah, and, and my son tells her. You know, it means mother. And it's such a powerful scene for Danny because her journey, if you look at where she started as like this truly a little girl who was a slave who got sold off to this Dothraki lord, you know, we've seen her get her dragons. We've seen her get her army. Right. We've seen her start. You know, she's had a small following of people. She gets all of these things by letting them go, too. Like, she gets her exactly. dragons by, by giving them to the flames of Drogo's pyre. Yeah, And she's rewarded yes. by them returning to her, basically. She gets her army by setting them free and giving them autonomy, and they choose to be with her. And then the same with these people. It's, it's great because they're coming out from the city, from Yunkai, and they're they don't know what to expect. You know, they don't know who this person is. They don't know what she stands for. And so Masande goes through all the titles and they're like, Oh God, potentially like, Oh God, just another despot, somebody who's going to rule over us, who has all these titles and thinks that they're so big and important. And Masande says, it's, it's to her. You owe your freedom. And yeah, she, she steps up. No, you do not owe it's me not your, your freedom. Yeah. Yeah. It's not true. If you want it back, like it, it belongs to you and you alone. Your freedom is not mine like you to You don't give. have to you don't have to follow me. It was like the vibe I was getting from her. Yeah. And that's I how they freed end up you. You can do whatever you want. And they you know, so in this moment she finally gets her followers and I know we had talked about I think maybe it was in the podcast that we recorded, The Bear and the Maiden Fair, we kind of talked about her story arc of finding her reason to conquer yep. and not just conquer f- and have that be the reason. She was starting to feel like freeing freeing slaves and giving people that choice of freedom and where they wanted to go was her purpose for conquering Slaver's Bay. She finally has like tens of thousands of people that are now relying on her they're not calling her a queen. They're calling her mother. She's become their protector in yeah, a way. She's a not queen their is ruler. one thing. She's their protector. Yeah. yeah like, she's their protector. They look for her for guidance. Yes. And guidance yeah. and protection. And she's given them a life. Exactly. Other than servitude. It's so much more than conquering at this point for right. her. So I. And then, of course, that beautiful scene, they lift her up and the dragons are kind of flying around and she's smiling and... Mother of crowd surfing. Yeah, seriously. And <laughs> it pans up and I, I always... I'm not a terribly emotional person, but I always... Like, my eyes always kind of, like, well up a little bit when I watch that scene when they pan out and there's all those people and they're all reaching towards her and she's just like, you know... Oh yeah, I don't it gets say me every soaking time. <laughs> it in. Yeah, I don't want to say soaking it in because that's she's not doing it in like a she's giving like a, herself to them. Yeah, she's surrendering to this is her purpose, this is her reason. And she what is it she says to uh, you know, Jora kind of tries to hold her back and she says, "It's all right. These people it's won't right. hurt me." Yeah. And she's like, she has balls of steel, man. 
Yeah, and then the last, the last, you know, scene that we're left with is her people, her dragons, and her army, and you're just like, dude, she's, this is getting real for Danny. Right. <laughs> this is, she's a, truly a force to be reckoned with at this point. She's, yep. She's so come badass. into her own. This is her moment. And I know she has other moments later on in the series, but this is her first truly big moment of stepping into the role of a leader. Mm-hmm. A connection with a people. Mm-hmm. Um, one other thing I liked about the idea that she, they don't owe her their freedom, that she can't give it to you, that it's theirs and theirs alone, that it's inherently theirs. That's I like that too, because that's like... Um, that's sort of like the fundamental concept of the formation of the United States, that your that freedom is an unalienable right that you're born with. The, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, doesn't give you your freedom. It just recognizes that you already have it, that it's a fundamental exactly. part of human existence, that you're born with freedom. So that's fucking awesome that she sort of recognizes that as well, philosophically. It's an yes, important absolutely. distinction to make that the, the government doesn't grant you your rights. You are born with your rights, you know. Absolutely. So that's cool. Love that. So anything else on Misa? I think that pretty much covers that. Okay. What's your number one? My number one is Davos, protector of the realm and the individual. And we talked nice. about it quite a bit, but I'm sure there's a few more things to, uh, to talk about. So he uh, he goes and he's he's having his reading lessons with Shireen, and he he's having difficulty pronouncing certain things. <laughs> so he the first time he reads the word knight, he says nigget. And, Why is uh, there a G in knight? I don't like, know. I don't know. There just is. But uh, he we learn that he's a quick learner from that. Like because the second time he reads knight, when it gets the scroll from the knight's watch, um, he. He reads it without issue, right? So we know he's a quick learner. But then later when he puts Gendry on the boat and he's like, why are you helping me? He's like, because it's the right thing to do. And I'm a slow learner. <laughs> he's like, no, you're not. We know you're a fast learner. Which is just kind of funny, like a little bit of I think he says that because humor. D- doesn't Stannis say something to that? Oh, well, yeah, he's, he's done stuff to... Uh, Basically, he's narrowly avoided being killed by Stannis <laughs> thus far, and he's doing something again that'll put him in a predicament. <laughs> which exactly, is exactly. Um, I I want to do a little small point about Shireen in this scene. Nice. She's always reading about the Targaryens and the dragons. Yeah, and the dragons. Well, and the I Baratheons just... are a Targaryen offshoot. Yes, and I I just always found that kind of interesting because she has grayscale and her face in that scene is exceptionally scaly and it just Mm. made me think of the dragons and she's so passionate about the dragons and you know sadly the way she dies with the fire i just feel like her scarring on her face has propelled this passion to read about something that maybe in a weird way she kind of relates to right um being a little scaly girl yeah, oh, and she's so, she's so freaking cute, you know, yeah, even awesome. with the grayscale. But I love that. I love her relationship with Davos. I always have. I think it's so sweet and so special. And being that Stannis is her father and he's so cold to her, yep. it's nice to see. And her mother's just 
Oh, the worst. Crazy. She's the worst. That she has someone in her life that she can be a child with, I guess, is the way I describe it. She can right. be open and doesn't have to be a princess. She can She can talk, talk about, about the stuff she's interested in. Yes. And share yes. things and yeah, have somebody so who actually I, I cares. love that. Yeah, it's great. I love and that dynamic. It's cool too, her enthusiasm. You could read about Balerion the Dread. They say you can still see his skull in the dungeons beneath the Red Keep. I'd like to see that someday. And as viewers, was- we've seen that a couple times when Arya, one hidden side of Balerion's skull in season one, when she's hearing uh, Varys and um, the, the uh, what's it guy? The guy whose house um, oh, Daenerys um, is staying at. Oh, give me a second. Magister. Illyrio. Illyrio, yes. She's hearing the conversation about the hand, well, one hand died, another can die, etc. So she's hiding in Balerion's skull there. Then we see it again when Cersei and Kyburn are testing out the ballista that Kyburn made to shoot the dragons out of the sky. And they they shoot and disfigure Balerion's skull, which really pisses me off, man. I know, that made me sad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really messed up. Um, so that's cool. We get to a little bit of a history lesson in case anybody is, doesn't remember this. When Robert won his rebellion and took over the red the, the throne, he the the previous Targaryen rulers had had all of the dragon the skulls from their reign lined up um, along the throne room, going from biggest to smallest. And the smallest one was the size of an apple, basically the skull. The largest one was so big, Balerion, that he could swallow a horse hole you know which is huge so um after that when robert took over he had them all removed some people think he had them destroyed but it seems that he at least has some stolen away down beneath the red keep um in the dungeons for storage which is good glad that they aren't all destroyed that would be fucked up yeah it it bothered me when they shattered Valerian skull in season seven i was like oh, oh yeah. like oh god yeah. i don't i i hate thinking that maybe that's a horrible foreshadow of the lannisters you know defeating danny in some weird way Ooh. like it's hard to imagine that they would defeat this person with two dragons and a in a army of unsullied but i'm hoping that it was just foreshadowing the death of viserion that's what i'm hoping the, too I, <laughs> I, I, i'm i'm hoping that that's the case yeah. but you know anything as, else is too painful to imagine as ramsey says if if you think this has a happy ending you aren't paying attention oh <laughs> yep true so you know yeah yep so uh back to the reading segment um davos picks up another scroll and uh, opens it and starts reading noblemen and <laughs> she corrects him to noblemen <laughs> noblemen of westeros the knights the knights watch implores and he sort of stops reading and then the bell starts tolling and it's really ominous as he's reading the message about the 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 white walkers descending and yes. it's like we're sort of left in silence as he sort of realizes what he's reading. And then the bells start ringing and just accentuating the ominous tone of that moment even further. Because we know that the bells only ring for horrible things, you know, <laughs> deaths. And you can even see it in Shireen's face. She's like, why are they ringing the bells? Yeah. Are we under attack? Like she starts, 
I don't want to say panicking, but she's definitely like heightened senses, like what's going on. Totally. They don't ring the bells for anything. Stay here, bar the door, you know, and he rushes off. And we get to the, to the map room and there's scrolls just littering the whole room. They're all over the map table. They're all over every shelf and surface in the room, basically. Scrolls everywhere. It's just kind of an interesting thing. Stannis isn't necessarily the neatest uh, person, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering about that too, actually, Duncan, because in other scenes, the table's clear. And then that scene, there's scrolls everywhere. So I wasn't sure hmm. if I was just missing something like were a bunch of people sending him scrolls because Rob Stark was dead oh. and they're just like spread across the table or was it because he's messy and good question. So yeah, I'm not really sure. So uh, interesting to note either way, there could be just a lot of chatter in the kingdoms of the death of the usurper, but all those Ravens would have had to come in real fast because they, the bells are ringing because he just found out that Rob Stark is dead. So it's probably yeah. just that they've been collecting for a while. Yeah. So we find out that Rob Stark is dead and um, we're, you know, Melisandre is like, <laughs> like kind of grinning and Davos thinks that, you know, she's taking credit because of her blood magic, you know, and he's, she's like, I take no credit. I have faith and my faith has been rewarded, you know, and uh, Davos sort of speaks out against the Machiavellian concept of the ends justifying the means, like we mentioned before. Um, he says that it's wrong to unite the seven kingdoms with blood magic. It's wrong and it's evil, and you're not evil. And um, then they go on to talk about, um, you know, Stannis brings up the point, well, this this is Aegon's table, and he conquered the seven kingdoms with dragons, and dragons are magic, Sir Davos. <laughs> you know, so it <laughs> can't be all bad, right? And so, Which is a uh, good point. It's another. It's another kind of parallel... Perspective thing. Perspective, yeah. Yeah. So um, he, they go on and they're talking about whether or not to burn Gendry, basically. Melisandre is arguing in favor of it. Davos is arguing against it, and uh, and it's it's great. It st- Stannis turns and walks towards the the uh, windows of the room, basically looking out over the ocean. And there's this beautiful shot where it's Stannis in the foreground and much smaller in the background is Melisandre on his left and Davos on his right. And they're both hovering like right by his shoulders, like the angel and devil on Stannis's shoulders, telling him opposite things to do. You know, obviously Melisandre being the devil and Davos being the angel. But another interesting thing I noted in this scene, maybe a smaller piece of another small piece of symbolism is that Davos is standing right by a brazier. So there's more fire on on Davos's side than than there is near Melisandre. So I was wondering maybe does this mean that Davos is symbolically closer to being an instrument of the Lord of Light than even Melisandre, who we know makes really bad Ooh. decisions in his name and uh sends Stannis on a bad path where he ends up being killed. So the the just the concept of um this this blatant comparison of Davos and Melisandre, and Davos has the fire next to him. I was just like, huh, maybe cause maybe he's an unwitting instrument of the Lord of Light. And then further on, after it's revealed that uh, the you know the the White Walkers are coming and everything, what is it that Davos says? That Stannis says to him, he says, uh, you. You know, you see, Sir Davos, you've been saved by that fire god you like to mock. You're in his army now. 
So it's like the whole time he was an instrument of of the Lord of Light, and it's just further confirmed by Stannis saying that at the end of their segment of this episode, which is cool. Um, I do love Malasandra in this scene because she's totally gloating. Oh <laughs> she yeah, goes, totally. Uh, she's she's taking the wolf pieces off the map and she's throwing them into the brazier oh, like shit. all I didn't happily. Even notice that. Yeah, and then she's smiling and she goes um, something. I you know I don't take any. I take no credit. I just do it. You know, I'm commanded and she tosses the last piece into the brazier and just like floats off with like this little smirk on her face. Yep. <laughs> so funny, man. She's I mean, she says that she takes no credit, but she's like, haha, in your face. One of the kings is dead. Booyah. Yep. <laughs> Classic. So that's funny. Uh, <laughs> it's great. So uh, they're talking about it and about the burning thing and. Melisandre. One of them says, uh, a great gift requires a great sacrifice. I think it's Melisandre. About how, like, yeah, they took a couple drops of his blood and a couple king, uh, kings died, but he, the, Stannis is nowhere near the throne. He isn't any closer yep. to the throne. So uh, in response to a great gift requires a great sacrifice, Davos um, personifies him. You know, his, his name is Gendry. You know, like, this isn't just some gift, some sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice. Yeah, it's a person. Um, yeah, it's he's a, a good being. lad. A poor lad He's from Flea Bottom who happens to be your nephew, yeah. And Stannis has a line here. What's what is the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom? And Davos responds, Everything. And this is one of another one of my favorite lines from the show, illustrating the significance of the individual over the collective. You know, there's a competing ideologies of individualism versus collectivism, which I know I've mentioned on this show before. And uh, collectivists claim that the individual must be overlooked or sacrificed for the benefit of the collective. But Davos and I both argue that killing the individual kills the essence of the collective. You know, the individual and the individual character and contributions are what make the collective strong. So you can't have like a good collective without the individual being preserved. It's the individuals that form the collective. So. It's important to me, you know. I, I'm a. I think individualism is very important. So that's yeah, a, and I loved that quote by the Red Woman because it reminds me of only death can pay for life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like it's kind of a possible foreshadow with John, uh, John Snow, because he died, which is death um, to pay for life. I think so. Again, shout out to Sir Patrick. I have a tinfoil theory on who Azor Ahai will be. Ooh, let's hear it. Oh, okay. Are you sure? Okay. So, <laughs> okay. I did this whole analysis on the opening credits. And at the very end of the opening credits, they show this like wheel with. The sun, like what I would call like a light. Astrolade or whatever they call it. Yeah. And it's moving clockwise. And at the top of the wheel from left to right, it goes Targaryen, Lannister. And then on the bottom, it goes Baratheon and Stark. And I went kind of around the wheel and I'll kind of skip all of that part. But when it gets to 
Stark and Targaryen on the wheel, I think the Starks have never defeated. I, I can't really explain my theory without going into like super detail of like how I analyze this wheel. Rachel uh, actually ended up recording the full version for you guys to uh, listen to if you want. So stick around after the show if you want to hear that. Whoop, whoop. But essentially, a Cliff Notes version, I feel like the Starks can't completely defeat the Targaryens because John, if John represents the Starks, he's also half Targaryen. So basically, my theory is I'll just get to the theory and I'll skip the wheel part. <laughs> I think Danny is going to get pregnant by John, clearly, because of what happens. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> I think Danny is sadly either going to die in childbirth or maybe not because of only death can pay for life and John's already died and mm -hmm. come back to life. But I think it's going to be a girl, and she's going to be Azor Ahai. Because the reason I think it's going to be a girl is Masande's translation of, you know, a, a prince or princess who was promised. Mm. So that was, a ho that was a horrible explanation of my tinfoil theory, because I could, my analysis is like a 10 minute long explanation, <laughs> and I don't want to take up too much time, but... Essentially, I feel like only death can pay for life. I think I don't. I think that if there's an Azor Ahai figure, it's got to be someone who's already around because there's only seven episodes left to to defeat the White Walkers, and it's supposedly going to be, you know, or six episodes. It's got to be Azor Ahai who lands, strikes the killing blow, right? You think so? You think Azor Ahai is the one to defeat the Night King, or do you think it might be someone like Bran? Well, in the myth of Azor Ahai, he's the, the hero that defeats the darkness. So I think that Azor Ahai is somebody who's already around. I mean, you know, I could be wrong, so it'll be interesting to And maybe, to know. well, no, that's, that's, that's you know, a fair, a fair theory, and if that's the case, then I think it's Danny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think John might die. Because and the reason I think it's Danny, I I think it's a woman. I I truly think it's a woman and the reason why is because there's no reason for Masande to correct the definition. Right. Other, other than to show that it doesn't necessarily mean the prince. Yeah, I have to I have to send you my analysis on the wheel for any of that shit to make sense because it's so out of context without going it, into get it all written down and we'll put out like a little bonus episode about it or something yeah i i can you know what i have the recording still i'll email it to you perfecto oh the other the other funny thing too is <laughs> after after stannis asks what's the life of one bastard boy against a kingdom and davos replies everything stannis doesn't really have like a philosophical response to articulate so he just says the boy must die <laughs> <laughs> which is hilarious to me <laughs> which is totally like his personality in a nutshell because he's like i don't have time for this bullshit he's gonna die yeah, get over yeah, yeah. it move on exactly so uh then it cuts to next scene we get davos basically intervening to save gendry he's uh freeing him from his bondage which unlike ramsey 
freeing Theon isn't actually a trick, you know, <laughs> but he's actually freeing him and setting him setting him free, you know? So tells them to aim for that, that star. Don't stop. There's bread and water. Go slow. Don't drink thirst, the seawater, no matter how thirsty you are. And he has that great line. Like you said, uh, you know, know how to swim. No, don't fall out. <laughs> which is just <laughs> great. And, uh, he, he leaves it off saying, uh, when you get to flea bottom, have a bowl of Brown for me, which I thought was a great line. I love the way that they sort of connected and, um, it's, it's going to be great seeing them interact more, once they're like uh, back in the same place again in season eight, working with John. Yeah, are they? I can't remember. Are they together now in season seven? They have been together. Um, well, because Davos is oh, yeah, advising they're, they're John. At, um, they're at the watch. Uh, watch by the sea. Yep. Okay. Something like Couldn't that. Remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were at East Watch last we saw them. So yeah, that'll be cool to see them have some more interactions in the future. So next. Stannis is back with Davos and we pretty much already covered this whole thing and that's when um, Melisandre is you know intent on having Davos killed until she realizes the that the whites are coming and throws the message in the flames and probably has some sort of vision that immediately changes her entire outlook on everything and she goes from thinking the war of five kings was the the focus to like forget that true war lies to the north Death marches on the wall. Only you can stop him. And she basically saves Davos, and he's in the Lord of Light's army now. So, uh, yeah, that pretty much wraps up my number one. Should we awesome. move on to notes? Got anything else sure. you want to talk about? No, I think I think that was a great top five. Great. I think i got a couple more things to mention. Let's see. Oh, so this episode starts out with the aftermath of the Red Wedding overlooking the Stark encampments, which are being you know, slaughtered outside of the twins, which is cool because it made me think of the Telltale Game of Thrones video game, which is like sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure type thing. Oh, you can yeah, make decisions my husband's played that. It's yeah. awesome. And unfortunately, I think that Telltale just went out of business. Um, oh, really? Yeah, sadly, when they were only partway done with the final season of their Walking Dead game, which is really weird. and That's too bad. Not cool at all. Yeah, so that's really sad to find out. But it's a really super intense video game, and it's really well made. I highly recommend playing it. You're uh, part of House Ironwood, basically, and it's it's really cool. Just play it. Play it. And so, um, play the game. Yeah. So it's cool because uh, all this chaos is going on. The Hound grabs a Frey banner to sort of shield him from the assault and to protect Arya, who's sitting on his lap, just kind of in shock after being nailed in the back of the head with his axe or whatever at the end of the last episode. And then that's when they roll out Rob's body being paraded on horseback with Grey Wind's head cross-bolted onto his shoulders, which is like a gruesome, symbolic display of what had just happened and to whom yes absolutely um, yeah to both to both rob and the wolf because they were both killed with yeah. you know well i guess and they call him the rob, young wolf right so so putting the wolf's head on his shoulders like there's no mistaking who this person is he's the young wolf like symbolizing his uh his sort of his the way that he's propagandized basically in the north remember like what is it they people describe him as uh like he he transformed into a wolf and all of his soldiers transformed as well and like so if with this guy with a wolf on it for a head like you know who it is you know they also say he can't be killed 
Right. Yeah. They're wrong about that. (laughs) (laughs) Beric can't be killed, apparently. (laughs) Well, and you know what's so sad about this scene is Arya is kind of like, like you said, she's kind of out of it. And as she's coming to, the first thing that she kind of like focuses on is her brother. Yeah. And the, I mean, Maisie Williams, we've talked about it before. She's such a great actress, but the look on her face, it's... It's a different look than what she had when her father died. Mm-hmm. Um, when she like that pain of looking at the birds as her father's head gets chopped off, like she's not looking and she's kind of, I think, imagining it. And in this scene, she's actually like looking at it and she's just like that pained look on her face and the tears kind of well up in her eyes and the fires flickering in her eyes and her mouth's a little open and she's just like, what on earth? Like I'm, she's in pain. She's in shock. She's confused. And it's such a sad moment because she was so close. She was right there. Right there. I mean, they were like on the other side of the door. Yeah. It's pretty brutal. And you know, she's all fucked up too about it. Cause she hates the hound at this point, but as they're riding away, she's sitting sideways. <laughs> on the horse like on his lap kind of and she's like yeah got her arms wrapped around him like her head like buried in his chest or his stomach because he's so big so yeah pretty messed up yeah there's another funny moment when Sansa is talking about what Arya would do to her when she was mad which is fill her bed with sheep shift and okay (laughs) I have that in my notes does she mean shit? Yeah, and that's like okay. I think okay. Uh, you know she's calling it shift, and Tyrion's like, uh, "What the hell? What? Sh- why sheep shift?" And she's like, "That's the vulgar word for, word for dung." And he and, like looks at Shay, and they both start <laughs> kind of like chuckling. Yeah, because it's like, not you know my lady. She, she's like so sheltered that she doesn't even know the word shit. Apparently, she says shift. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, naive Sansa. <laughs> <laughs> so we uh, we get a. Uh, little cool thing with Walder Frey where he mentions how he's called the late Walder Frey. And at this point in the story for us, he's late, like he's dead, you know, so now we can refer to him as the late Walder Frey. (laughs) But it was (laughs) a a nickname for a long time in his life because of an old battle where he was a bannerman for the Tullys and they called him to fight, but he didn't show up until to the trident um, until the the fight was was over. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so he was known as the late Walder Frey, which is kind of funny. We get a little explanation of that. I like this actor I've wanted to mention also. He's really good. I remember seeing him in Harry Potter, and he also is in The Tudors. He plays King Henry VIII's fool. Oh, yes. Who's consoling him after the death of his third wife. Um, That's right. Which is cool. Good catch. Um, He's, he says, the you know, when Roose Bolton says that Rob is forever young, it made me think of Forever 27, when all those like famous musicians and actors who died when they were 27 years old, like oh, yeah. Jim Morrison and Jimi Hendrix and uh, all these people. Janis Joplin, Kurt Cobain, Fredo Santana. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah, that's a, that's a bad age for uh, musicians. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we never mentioned either the, uh, the dick in the box. <laughs> Dick in the box. <laughs> <laughs> Dick in a box. Where Balon and Yara are hanging out and they get a letter from the bastard Bolton, Ramsey Snow, who... Uh, okay, so I have on my notes, it says, 
in a bullet point it says Ramsey's stupid letters. Uh, <laughs> hilarious. Stupid threat letters because he sends one to Balon and one to Jon Snow. Allegedly to the wall, yeah, the pink letter. The pink letter, that's right. Yep, so uh, this was obviously an intense moment where we basically it's it's there's no question about it you know the he sent ram uh he sent theon's dick in a box to his dad <laughs> which is so insane <laughs> he calls it his favorite toy uh, he cried when i took it away from him and uh god damn that's insane they're both like silently react as they look into the box and Yara surprisingly sticks up for Theon. Uh, Balon has given up on him at this point. Son, he's he's not even a man anymore, you know. And uh, Yara decides to pick up the fast, pick the fastest ship in the fleet, pick the top fifty killers in the Iron Islands, sail up to the narrow sea, up all the way to the Weeping Water, march on the Dread Fort. She's going to find her little brother, and she's going to bring him home. So it's kind of a touching moment where you know. Theon didn't really get along with any of his family before. Yara had been very dismissive of him, thinking he's a little bitch, basically, that she's the real iron, you know, the the heir to Balon, who's running ships and, and managing crews and raiding and pillaging and probably even raping. You know what I mean? So um, With a wooden cock. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I had that in my notes, too, that, you know, when... Theon first came to the uh, back to the Iron Islands. She was very quick to dismiss him and make fun of him. But then, you know, in this moment, she kind of realizes that this is her brother and he's yeah. being tortured. She and goes to bat for him. She's going to bring him home. But she was very quick to, like, want him to leave and at, at, at the beginning. And now she's like, I'm... She basically defies her father, which is a very big deal. I mean, the Ironborn are like Viking people. That's they're very hard. They're very tough. They're very prideful. And for her to do that to her father says a lot without saying a lot. Right. And it reminded me also um, when when Theon was convinced to go for Winterfell, it was he was with Dagmar Clefjaw, who who basically said, your father gave you orders, but. You know, real Ironborn do what they want. You know, exactly, and convinced him to go to Winterfell. So here is uh, here's Yara basically proving that trope and saying, "Oh well, you decide not to do anything. Well, I'm fucking doing it. You know, I've made up my mind. I'm going to go do it." So it seems to be a true thing about the Ironborn. Yeah, absolutely. So Shay and Varys meet. Oh, They're diamonds a are a girl's best friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which is another hint that she's a faceless man because she doesn't give a fuck about the diamonds. Yeah, so. I was going to, my notes say she basically tells Varys to take those diamonds and shove them up his ass. Yeah, it's pretty funny. So she, uh, he gives her the diamonds, tells her to go. She doesn't, um, doesn't buy it. She wants to stay and, uh, Fairy says, if you let yourself believe that a foreign girl with no name could spend her life with the son of Tywin Lannister, and she says, I have a name. Fairy says she has no name. A girl has no name. You know? Yeah. Faceless yeah. man trope. They don't have a name or a face. But she says, I have a name. So that would contradict the, the no name no name theme of the faceless men. I'm gonna I'm gonna speak for Sir Patrick here and say, or does it? Because I was gonna say, yeah, a faceless man would be. Maybe pretending. she's playing the 
the name of faces. Yeah, yeah exactly. So a real faceless man, faceless man would pretend to have a name for sure. So uh, yeah, I knew Sir Patrick. Yeah, like Jock and Hagar. Yeah, exactly. That's a name. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. It's Shay varies. They only have one name, so he makes that point too. And uh, I like how he says something like, "We can break bread with them, but we're never family." And yep. You know, we can basically, it, it's funny, I can't remember if this, it's been so long since I've watched the before episodes and the after episodes of this one, but um, when Varys says to somebody who calls him Lord Varys, he goes, actually, it's just Varys. And right. she, and the whoever that he is talking to, do you remember this at all? Yeah, it goes, sounds familiar. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, and it was, you know, they're under no obligation to call me Lord. And the person, whoever he was talking to, said, well, it's interesting that they do. So everybody listening out there, if you remember this scene, Maybe it was like Baelish or something. Because <laughs> I just remember that. Because that was the first time I ever realized that Lord Varys actually yeah. truly is just Varys. Maybe he was talking with Baelish because they always have those cool conversations you know where things get revealed and you know well i'm so powerful that they choose Maybe. to call me lord i know? feel like it was somebody else oh you know who it was with it who? was prince oberin oh nice it so was prince oberin he's talking to, to him and yes i'm it's all coming back to me now it just took me a second to recalibrate my game of thrones <laughs> radar awesome. um they're sitting in the throne room and they're talking um Oberyn picks up on his accent and he goes, my accent's entirely gone. And then he says something, Oberyn says something else and he calls him Lord Varys. And because I think Varys is talking to a, a foreign prince, he goes, actually, it's just Varys. No one is under obligation to call me a lord. And Oberyn says, but yet they do. Right. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah. It's all coming back to me now. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So that pretty much wraps up my notes. I do have one or two other notes. Oh, I was curious. Who do you think tells Sansa that her mother and brother died? Because when Tyrion goes to talk oh, to yeah, her, she, she knows. clearly already knows. Good question. Joffrey probably like had a message sent to her just to rub it into her face or something. You know. Yeah, I was thinking maybe he probably it was sent a telegram in, in song. You know, somebody did. Your brother's dead, and that's the end. The red wedding has happened. <laughs> you know, and she's like, oh. I was thinking maybe it was Varys because she was crying and she was clearly crying pretty hard, but she wasn't like terrorized. And I feel like Joffrey would have, if it was Joffrey right, or yeah, like Cersei, a singing telegram. <laughs> terrorizing yeah, the hell out of her. I felt like if it was Joffrey or Cersei telling her that she would be um, terrorized by it and like kind of tortured with it yeah because he's always talking like i'm gonna serve her brother's head to her at my wedding feast i'm gonna you know make her lick the blood off heart or <laughs> you know my sword after i kill her brother yeah totally so i feel like she was just sitting looking out the window crying and i feel like if cersei or joffrey were the ones telling her i, I don't think she would I think she would be like distraught. And I mean, not to say that she wasn't, but she was just simply grieving. So I'm wondering if maybe it was Varys. Yeah, it's a good question. Might have been. He could have gone right from the small council meeting and divulged it to her. Yeah. 
And then the only other note that I had is there was one there was one moment I really feel like Cersei is really hard for me personally to relate to in any sense of the word relate because <laughs> she's so soulless. Right. But she's talking about how she she's talking with Tyrion and how you know she was basically telling Tyrion to give Sansa a child because it'll make her happy and Tyrion's like well you're not very happy and you have children and right. she basically says you know I would be basically dead if it weren't for my children it's mm. like the one thing that keeps me going and, and she reminisces about Joffrey even yes and a jolly little fellow yeah, and that she used to just stare at him for hours and look at his tiny little feet and his little hands and his little fingernails. And, you know, it was wonderful to have something that was yours. And I think being a mom myself and spending hours looking at, you know, holding a little baby, it's the only thing that I can relate to Cersei about. It's the only thing that makes her not a soulless bitch <laughs> to me. Like... It's the only thing that humanizes her in a way yeah, is her, her children. Love for her children, yeah. Yeah. So I agree. that would, Yeah, that was kind of just a she's moment. A Misa. She's a Misa. She's a Misa, exactly. So again, it, it was just it's nice to see flickers of that with such a soulless character. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> you know, it just ke it keeps her down to earth. Totally does. Or I should say planet toast. <laughs> yeah. Good call. Good call. Yeah. So I, that was, those were the only two notes that I had that you didn't go over. All right. Cool. Let's take a little break and uh, we'll be right back. Stay with us. Gonna give you something so you know what's on my mind. What's on my mind. A gift real special. So take off the towel. Take a look inside Theon's dick in a box It's in a box Not gonna get you a diamond ring That sort of gift don't mean anything Not gonna get you a fancy car Girl, you gotta know you're my shining star Not gonna get you a house in the hills A girl like you needs something real Wanna get you something from the heart Something special, girl Theon's dick in a box My dick in a box, babe It's my dick in a box And we're back with some news about Game of Thrones. As for Game of Thrones news, we have a potential air date for Season 8, which is April 21st, 2019. So, we're going to need to hustle with our series rewatch. <laughs> Lucky you listeners get a lot of uh, two-episode weeks, so... Look forward to that. It's going to be fun. From Screen Rant, how Game of Thrones prevented set photos from spoiling the series finale. When it comes to avoiding spoilers for Game of Thrones, filmmakers are taking no chances for season eight. According to EW, HBO is using new high-tech instruments to make sure drones cannot fly over filming locations called a drone killer. Previously, Game of Thrones has had leaks due to flying drones, as explained by actress, actress Sophie Turner at New York Comic Con. If a drone flies above the sets, 
there's a thing that can kill the drones, which is really cool. It creates a field around it, and the drones just drop. It's very X-Men. She would be thinking about X-Men, considering she's just in the X-Men movie. <laughs> right. Yeah. While this new development will no doubt help contain spoilers on the highly anticipated season, the show has still had trouble in the past keeping elements of the plot a secret. Our next article is from Mental Floss. Game of Thrones star Sophie Turner reveals what she stole from the set by Mason Siegel. It's practically a rite of passage for actors to steal their favorite props and costumes from their big budget productions. (laughs) David Tennant kept the 10th Doctor's sonic screwdriver from Doctor Who, while Robert Downey Jr. somehow made off with a 30-foot A from The Avengers, and Emma Watson laid claim to pretty much half of the props department from each Harry Potter movie. (laughs) (laughs) And now, Game of Thrones star Sophie Turner is adding her name to the list of Hollywood thieves by revealing at a New York Comic Con panel that not only did she walk off the set of the final season with her favorite corset, but that her co-stars Kit Harrington and Maisie Williams went ahead and claimed ownership of their respective swords. <laughs> Turner's Very de- cool. <laughs> yeah, I would totally take the sword too. Turner's decision to rat out her co-stars is something like is, is just like something Sansa Stark would do in order to divert attention to others, even when she's confessing to her own crimes. To be fair, Harrington has already discussed how he has wanted to keep his sword, Longclaw, since day one. There's only one that I've ever wanted. I want my sword, he said in an interview with Entertainment Tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And next, we'll move on to our Game of Thrones and History segment. Today, we have something from Ranker.com. And uh, it's an article, Real Historical Figures Who Inspired Game of Thrones Characters, by Trisha Sarais Murray. So we'll cover five or six of them here and then maybe come back next week. Take it away. Awesome. Henry VIII of England is Robert Baratheon. Putting aside the physical resemblance, which really may be too uncanny to ignore, Henry VIII and Robert Baratheon shared many traits. Both kings loved women, especially the ones who were not their wives. Henry's second wife, Anne Boleyn, was rumored to have an incestuous relationship with her brother. Cersei's relationship with Jaime moved far beyond speculation. (laughs) When Henry and Robert weren't womanizing, they enjoyed lavish celebrations and dangerous games of sport. Henry especially loved hunting, which makes his Game of Thrones counterpart's death by boar a fitting end. You know what's interesting is Anne Boleyn was played by Marjorie. The Marjorie, um, Natalie Dormer. Yep. On yes. uh, the Tudors. On the Tudors. Great Such show. Such a good show. And there really are lots of uh, parallels to be drawn between Robert Baratheon and Henry VIII. They both bankrupted <laughs> their kingdoms at points, yes. too. Yes. I was just going to say that. Bankrupt, womanizing, bastard, children, all of it. Yep. Classic. Very cool. Next, Emperor Claudius is, Ty- Ty- is Tyrion. Is Tyrion Lannister. <laughs> Emperor Claudius was to the Roman Emperor what Tyrion Lannister is to Westeros. Growing up, Claudius was ruled out as a potential emperor because he had a speech impediment and a limp. His family looked down on him for his imperfections almost as much as Tyrion's family literally looked down on him because of his size. Once given a chance, however, both men proved themselves to be brilliant politicians and administrators, showing their people that brains could be even better than brawn. 
Cesar Borgia is Jamie Lannister. As the son of Pope Alexander VI, Cesar Borgia was expected to be a noble and religious warrior whose life essentially belonged to the Vatican. As the story goes, and showtimes the Borgias showed, Cesar followed his skewed moral compass rather than catering to what others wanted him to be. Like Sir Jamie Lannister, Cesar was known for his many betrayals, including the alleged murder of his brother, which seemed akin to the way Jamie earned his title, the Kingslayer. Mm. Cesar was also rumored to seduce his younger brother's wife and have an ongoing sexual relationship with his sister, making him a possible father of the mysterious Infantis Romanus. Within the word, within the world of Game of Thrones, Jamie's relationship with Cersei and her children is widely based on speculation, but viewers know and sometimes root for the truth of Jamie's affections. Catherine de' Medici is Cersei Lannister. Much like Cersei Lannister, Catherine de' Medici was born to an obscenely rich family and came into even more fortune when she was crowned queen. After King Francis II died, Catherine alternated between advising her sons, who would all be crowned in her lifetime, and serving as Francis' regent in a similar fashion to Cersei's role in King's Landing. Both women were also paranoid and ruthless when it came to protecting their families. Catherine was reportedly forewarned of her son's death by Nostradamus, and Cersei bullied a witch into revealing that her children would all be shrouded in gold. The main difference between the two women is that most people didn't root for Catherine's oldest child to meet his prophesied fate. Caligula is Joffrey Baratheon. Let's just cut to the chase and say that Joffrey was probably the most hated character in all of Game of Thrones. (laughs) True statement. Yeah. If ever there was a real person who was equally vicious and hated as King Joffrey, it would have been the Roman Emperor Caligula. Both boys came into power at a young age and both loved to wield their power by tormenting others. They also shared the same fondness for spending tons of money on ridiculous spectacles rather than, say, feeding their starving citizens. As a final similarity, Both were killed before they were old enough to become men because people hated them so much. That's hardcore. (laughs) Caligula was gnarly. Oh, man. There's a movie um, starring Malcolm McDowell called Caligula where he plays Caligula. And it's brutal to watch. Yeah, it's really, really hardcore. Edward IV of England is Rob Stark. If there was a contest between all the real people who inspired Game of Thrones characters, Edward IV of York would win. King Edward, who, as we remember, represented the North before he became the all-out king, was given the crown after his father was beheaded, just as Rob became king of the North after Ned faced the same brutal fate. As kings, Edward and Rob fought on the battlefields during their respective civil wars and tried to avenge their families. Both men were extremely close to their mothers, who yielded more influence than any political advisors, and only fell out of favor with their matriarchs when it came to the conflict of love versus marriage. Edward was betrothed for political reasons, since those were the only reasons that mattered to highborns in both worlds, but he ignored his duty to marry Elizabeth Woodville, who he actually loved. Rob chose to follow his heart as well, which resulted in the Red Wedding. Ooh. What's that? You hear that? What is that? 
Mr. Luke of House Pilling. Hey, Luke. Hey. Some great acting moments in this episode, like the micro expressions from Cersei when Tyrion asks even Joffrey, or earlier in the episodes when we are treated to Tywin just staring as Joffrey progresses from tantrum to uncomfortablelessness, and everyone else just wondering what Tywin will do. To be honest, on rewatching the last scene with Danny, the behavior of the post slave crowd feels weird and unnatural. At the time, this was very moving important scene as it really set Danny on trajectory of liberator rather than conqueror and it gives us parentheses false question mark hope that her arc is picking up momentum <laughs> overall a good episode of course with many important plot points parentheses Malisandra releasing the war of five kings means nothing looking forward to hearing your take Sir Matthew of House Rep says, A much more hopeful end for the season after the events of last episode. As always, the editing department does such a great job with how they structure the episode to give it the most meaning. Right after we hear the story of the rat cook and how he was cursed by the gods for violating guest right, we jump right to Walder Frey just to drive home how wretched a creature he really is. When Joffrey is lashing out at Tywin, stating how his father won the real war, he is speaking of how Robert won his rebellion, but could easily mean how his actual father was the one to kill the Mad King. Ooh, Ooh very nice. good. Lady Lisa of House Sky. I think this is the turning point for Arya. When she sees Rob's body with Grey Wind's head being paraded around is when dark and twisty Arya is born. <laughs> she has been building up to this for a long time, especially after being imprisoned at Harrenhal and watching all the torture and death. This little girl has suffered so many traumatic events, and this is the last straw. The look on her tired face is absolutely heartbreaking. True statement, Lady Lisa. Yeah, pretty brutal. Sir Nick of House Wiccans. This episode contains one of my favorite scenes from the show. The small council meeting is just such an interesting scene when you look at each character, considering this is the side that just, quote, won via the Red Wedding. It's only really Cersei and particularly Joffrey that seem to take any pleasure from it. Even Tywin the instigator is just matter-of-fact about it and doesn't appear to take any joy from it, or remorse, of course. It's also hard to argue against his point to Tyrion afterward about the nobility of killing a few dozen at dinner rather than thousands in battle. Littlefinger gives nothing away considering Cat was just killed, which is interesting. Varys' reactionary facial expressions are often amusing. In this case, his distaste towards Joffrey. <laughs> this, this Cersei, so desperate for her father's approval and fearful of him, is so far from the Cersei we have now that has no fucks left to give. <laughs> Tyrion, obviously disgusted by it, clearly resolved to protect Sansa as best he can. Of course, Tywin sending Joffrey to be to bed like the bitch he is is <laughs> such a great moment. Also, the nervous tension in the room after Joffrey's outburst, waiting to see what Tywin will do, is great. Tywin's troll face is golden, too. <laughs> The whole scene is just well-paced, written, and acted. Even the subtleties tell you a lot about each of these characters. Tywin's power over all of them is truly on display here, and that's no small thing considering the people in the room. It's easy to see why things went so chaotic after his death. 
Any man who must say, I am the king, is no true king, is also one of my favorite quotes. True that. What's up, everyone? It's Grand Maester Stitches from the Luminescent Citadel in the Isles of the Sirens. And I love this episode, but probably my favorite part, and all I'm going to touch on here in this quick feedback, is the opening. Killed a few puppies today. I just love that. That opening scene of Joffrey being so excited to tell basically Tyrion what happened to Rob and to, to show what the Raven had brought. And just Tyrion killed a few puppies today. It just, oh, that's what we were missing. This great big Red Wedding episode before. And it didn't have any Tyrion in it. Um, so seeing uh, Tyrion in this scene, oh, it's just so freaking good. And it's it's so heartbreaking at the towards the end when he basically goes to talk to Sansa and she's already crying because she's basically already found out. Um, but I, my, my favorite part would have to be Tywin Lannister in this scene. It's probably one of my favorite parts of the series because this dialogue from where this man basically tells this angry, you know, boy king, anyone that says they're a king isn't a king at all, and then basically tells the Grand Maester, give him some nightshade and put him to bed while the real men talk, essentially. And even putting Cersei, everybody he kind of just puts in their place just with his looks in the scene. So well acted. And then it rounds out with that that talk of, you know, you're a Lannister and you're my son, you know, and that your son is going to be the next warden in the north. And just the these massive plans he has to to solidify his legacy moving forward. It's so moving, and it is really moving. I think even in this moment, I personally believe he is almost proud of Tyrion and to call him his own of, you know, from the Battle of Blackwater. This is that that crucial part of the show where, you know, Tyrion has bounced back from where he was knocked down from the Hand of the King and has, has done it, and still manages, I think, to gain and keep his father's respect. So it's, Good point. again, one of my favorite scenes in the series. Definitely a great freaking season three closer, and I'm looking forward to the season four rewatch and giving more feedback here on your awesome podcast. Thank you so much for everything you've endured to keep this thing strong and to keep giving it to all of your fans here listening. And, uh, yeah, looking forward to the next show. Great to hear from you, Grand Maester Stitches, and uh, look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon, my friend. Alright, that's our show, episode 72. Thanks for listening, everybody, and a huge thanks to Lady Rachel of House Fox for joining us again today. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me, Duncan. It's always such a pleasure being a part of Game of Microphones, and I love podcasting with you. Well, you'll be back again soon, so. Awesome. Fret Can't not. wait. <laughs> and yep. I have a real microphone this time, people, <laughs> so I won't be all clippy. Yeah, it sounds good. <laughs> Next episode, we'll be covering Season 4, Episode 1, Two Swords. Give it a watch and send us your thoughts. We'd love to read them on air. Yes. Send us your thoughts, please. If you'd like to call, you can call us at 813-JOFFREY. That's 813-563-3739.
If you'd like to write in, you can email us at ravens at gameofmicrophones.com. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash gompodcast. Imslap! Uh. (laughs) (laughs) We're also on Twitter and Instagram at gompodcast. Give us a like on Facebook and an iTunes rating slash review. Kristen and other Podcastica hosts are continuing their coverage of Game of Thrones over at their new podcast, House Podcastica. They have released a new episode covering Game of Thrones Season 3, Episode 10, Misa. You can find that at housepodcastica.com or by searching for House Podcastica on your favorite podcast platform. All right, that's our show. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. just sent the most powerful man in Westeros to bed without his supper. You're a fool to believe he's the most powerful man in Westeros. A treasonous statement. Joffrey is king. Phantom ears can't hear spoilers. Don't kill me! Don't oh, hurt me, please! Don't kill me. <laughs> I'm howling. Oh! <laughs> At the moon, it was so cool. And, like, there's no way they could tell Hodor, like, not to Hodor. So if you know who Hodor is and he confirms that by Hodoring, like, the game is up, you know? <laughs> it's over. <laughs> the birth of Reek. Yes. Ugh. Okay. <laughs> Gendry starts rowing. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, Pip. Sam. And he goes, don't worry, you're home now. Yep, and uh, the bromance continues. And he walks up into the Red Keep or whatever and enters Cersei's chamber where she's lamping out, chilling, and and maybe Tywin made Maester, uh, Maester Pycelle, or yeah, Py- maybe he made Pycelle give him, uh, give, ugh, I can't talk. Ugh. It was bad. It was gross. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> he died, which is death. That's very true. <laughs> well met, lords and ladies. This is Lady Rachel of House Fox. I wanted to go into some more detail about my analysis I spoke about in the Season 3, Episode 10, Misa, Game of Microphones recording. This analysis surrounds the opening credits to the Game of Thrones, specifically the wheel with the sigils of houses Targaryen, Lannister, Stark, and Baratheon. There are a lot of symbolism that comes with this quick vision of the wheel with a bright light behind it, which actually moves clockwise. Being that the light moves clockwise and most cultures read from left to right and top to bottom, this is where my rambling of the symbology of the wheel will begin. From the top left to top right, if Danny represents the dragon and Tyrion represents the lion, this foreshadows Danny and Tyrion working together to take Westeros. Tyrion is also the first main character to meet Danny and possibly is a Targaryen himself. This alliance also foreshadows the meeting of houses Targaryen, and yes, I'm including my beloved Jon Snow and Lannisters in season seven to discuss the Great War. Other symbols of the dragon moving over the lion as the wheel spins clockwise can represent the loot train battle where Danny burns the shit out of the Lannister forces 
It can also represent a possible foreshadowing of Danny beating Cersei in season eight. From top right to bottom right, if Cersei represents the lion and Robert represents the stag, their marriage formed the alliance between these two houses and ruled the seven kingdoms for 17 years through a relatively peaceful time. Other symbols of the lion moving over the stag as the wheel spins clockwise represent Cersei having Robert killed and Tyrion beating Stannis in the Battle of the Blackwater. From bottom right to bottom left, if Robert represents the stag and ne Ned represents the wolf, their friendship is what held up the Seven Kingdoms after Robert's rebellion, as Renly pointed out to Cat in season two. This is why I believe these two houses appear at the bottom of the wheel. In the pilot episode, when Robert and Ned were in the crypts of Winterfell, Robert says to Ned, I have a son, you have a daughter, we'll join our houses. Most viewers at the time assumed that Robert meant the betrothal of Sansa and Joffrey. But this could also foreshadow a possibility of these two houses still joining together in season eight with Gendry and Arya, since the stag still appears on the wheel even in season seven, episode seven. This intrigues me as the op opening credits have changed multiple times throughout the seasons and from episode to episode, but why does the stag still appear on the wheel? Other symbols of the stag moving over the wolf as the wheel spins clockwise can represent Ned's beheading by Joffrey. While we all know that Joffrey is in fact a Lannister, technically his last name is in fact Baratheon. From bottom left to top left. If John represents the wolf and Danny the dragon, this foreshadows John and Danny's alliance and the steamy incest boat lovin' in season seven. While many viewers say their alliance is a song of ice and fire, I believe that John is actually the OG song of ice and fire. The wolf can also be represented by Leona and the dragon represented by Rhaegar. If the wolf represents ice and the dragon fire, then the marriage of Leona and Rhaegar, which resulted in the birth of Jon Snow, rather Aegon Targaryen, Jon's soul is the physical embodiment of ice and fire. Since John has had the most screen time up to this point, it is safe to say that he has emerged as the main character in this series. Game of Thrones being based off of GRRM's A Song of Ice and Fire's novels shows us that this show is about John, ice and fire, embodied into one soul, one song, one being, and one totally hot guy. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that John is the prince that was promised. You could make a darn good argument that he very well may be, with his resurrection and what seems to be a divine intervention during every battle he has been a part of. Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards, The Magnificent Seven, Beyond the Wall. You could also make an argument for Danny being the princess who was promised, walking out of a fire with three dragons unburnt, walking out of a fire again at the Dosh Kaleen, and her conversation with Masande, where Masande actually corrects Danny with the trans and prophecy being that Azor High has no gender. Therefore, it could mean the princess who was promised. The only need for that scene is to let the viewer know Azor High could in fact be a woman. With strong, sexy, smart, cunning women taking over Westeros and many of the great houses for the past few seasons, this also may foreshadow that Azor High is in fact a woman. 
Other symbols of the wolf moving towards the dragon as the wheel spins clockwise is that John is in fact a Targaryen. In season five, episode two, when Danny says her famous line, I don't want to stop the wheel, I want to break the wheel, sheds a lot of meaning into my wheel analogy. I believe that the wolf cannot fully defeat the dragon in the, in the way the other combinations above have defeated each other. John is not only a wolf, but he is also a dragon. His soul is ice and fire. So if this is where the wheel were to break, Danny being all dragon and John being part dragon together represent more fire than ice. This ties into Rolor's religion, which is a fire religion. So when the wheel breaks, it is only then that the prince or princess who is promised can be born. I predict Danny will get pregnant with John's baby. The scene where Danny tells John on the boat that the dragons will be the only children she'll ever have, and John's response to her was that the Magi may not be a reliable source of information, foreshadows that John will be Danny's baby daddy. Then I sadly predict that Danny will die in childbirth because only death can pay for life, and their child would be the prince or princess who was promised. My money is on princess because of the fact that Masande's translation of Azora High is, in fact, it can be a prince or a princess. So to wrap up all of my crazy thoughts, the wheel represents all of the relationships of the major houses in Game of Thrones. It comes full circle as all of these seasons play out, which I think is really cool. Well, that's it for now, my fellow Throners. Looking forward to hearing from you again soon. Talk to you later. Bye. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.